This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Tuesday morning, which uh, is the day after Monday and the day preceding Wednesday. And we're so excited to have uh, our royalty back. Miss Lehigh, Caitlin Hello. Thomas, you've made it back. Congratulations. I made it. On your service award winning, uh, what do they call it? Scholarships. Scholarships, yes. That's so awesome. You got some scholarships. He so did. now we don't have to pay you to do the show. Mm, well, see, scholarships only pay for school, but I still have to pay for food and my car. Okay, well, that was a weird segue <laughs> to your... Well, we'll we will, we will take care of you. We'll take Thanks, care of you. Matt. Good to have you back, Thank Caitlin. You. We got a great show for you coming up today. Um, what about this? So, uh, tragedy strikes in um, at uh, the club in Orlando, the Pulse Club in Orlando. And, you know, the minute that happens... Immediately, both sides of the uh, political spectrum start throwing out ideas, solutions, fixes for gun laws, uh, make it uh, to be voted on. Um, Donald Trump continues his push against um, uh, uh, doing whatever he can to keep um, – how do we say this delicately? Uh, those of the Islam faith out of the country. <laughs> um, in the end, though – all this reactivity, is it good for policymaking? Do we make really good political decisions and good legislation when it's driven by our most emotional reactions? Well, in a few minutes, we're going to be talking with a professor from George Mason University that would say, not really, no. Better legislation would be made if we would, if we would think stuff through. And so we'll be talking with him. About uh, political ignorance. That's the, uh, he's the author of the book titled Political Ignorance and uh, how we can maybe get a little more informed in order to make better decisions uh, politically. And because, and, again, how many of these disasters and catastrophes have we had with no legislation really coming through? Um, so inactivity won't suit and nor will overreactivity. And we'll be talking about a healthier way to maybe go about creating change. Also on the show today, man, a lot of uh, interesting other topics. We're going to be getting into Alzheimer's research as well, as well as work-life balance throughout the three-hour show. So you're going to want to stick with us through that. But before we get to all of that and all the other crazy headlines, please stick with us. Let's get to Caitlin and find out what's going on with the headlines around the country. Caitlin, what's up? Well, Matt, the FBI on Monday released the full transcript of Orlando killer Omar Mateen's 911 call. So this is no longer censored. He says, praise be to God in prayers as well as peace be upon the prophet of God. Mateen said in Arabic, pledging allegiance specifically to the leader of ISIS. I let you know I'm in Orlando and I did the shootings, he said. According to the FBI, Mateen, quote, identified himself as an Islamic soldier in phone calls with crisis negotiators telling them to, quote, stop bombing Syria and Iraq. Mateen also warned of similar attacks in the coming days and said he had a suicide vest similar to the ones used in France. 
Um, like Matt said, the four competing gun proposals put forward in the Senate all failed to earn a majority of votes on Monday night. Similar versions of these proposals failed to pass in the Senate after the terrorist attack in San Bernardino last year. Lawmakers voted 53 to 47 for a Republican-proposed background check plan and 44 to 56 for the Democratic-proposed one. Both failed to earn the 60-vote majority. Another motion requiring background checks to gun shows failed, too, with a 44 to 56 vote, a measure proposed by Senator Dianne Feinstein, which would allow the Attorney General to deny firearms to suspected terrorists, also failed. These measures come just a week after the most fatal shooting in United States history took place in Orlando. According to new fundraising reports, presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump raised $13 million for the party in May. It reported the same amount in April prior to Trump consolidating the nomination. In total, the party had about $20 million in the bank in June. In 2012, Republican candidate Mitt Romney brought in $34 million for the RNC, allowing them to start June with more than $60 million on hand. Trump has recently said that money is, quote, pouring into the party. Donald Trump faces the worst financial disadvantage in recent presidential history. He had $1.3 million on hand to Hillary Clinton's $42 million. Two massive brush fires ripped through the Angeles National Forest in Duarte and Azua spreading across 2,000 acres in California. The fire, referred to as the Reservoir Fire, began shortly after 11 a.m. and grew due to dry air conditions and scorching temperatures. At least 300 firefighters were trying to put it out, but it could not be contained by mid-afternoon. The SUV that rolled down a driveway and killed Star Trek actor Anton Yelchin was being recalled because the gear shifters have confused drivers, causing the vehicles to roll away unexpectedly. Yelchin, 27, a rising actor best known for playing Chekhov in the rebooted series of Star Trek, died Sunday after his 2015 Jeep Grand Cherokee pinned him against a mailbox pillar and security fence at his home. The 2015 model year Grand Cherokees were part of a global recall of 1.1 million vehicles announced by automaker Fiat Chrysler in April. Unfortunate. Sad. I mean, just, I mean, I, we have a new car with a weird little shifter. And you, like many times I've gotten ready to get out of the car thinking I had parked my car. And then it's not in park. It's not in park. Because it, it doesn't have a shifter anymore. It just has buttons. I was just, really? Yeah, they're just buttons. So you just push the button. But I guess I should push the park button. Yeah, the one with the big P yeah. means park. Yeah. So, oh, that's sad. And that was just a tragedy all around. Young actor. Young, 27-year-old. <sighs> well, thanks for the news. And you know thanks it. for being here. Glad you I'm made it back. back. You're back. Back and no longer wearing a crown. No, no more crowns to keep me out of work. So. That's good. So, Ben, now you can wear the crown without anyone making fun of you. I know. It was, it was kind of annoying having another person wear a crown to work. <laughs> well, it's hard. Ben. It's hard. Hey, by the way, uh, today is Go Skateboarding Day. Today we celebrate, uh, you know, the the blessing of a skateboard. How many fathers have stubbed their toe or slipped off of a skateboard as they're walking down the stairs like I have? Um, I have four skateboards at the bottom of my stairs in my garage. Many would call that dangerous. Your kids are trying to kill you. Yeah, I think they are. But uh, I didn't die. Hey, by the way, it's also World Music Day. Yeah. Today's the day we celebrate the incredible power of music, like this beat that Ben's laying down. Wow, Ben. I mean, of all the music you could have chosen for World Music Day, you chose this one. It just seems so authentic. Millie Vanilli? Yeah. Why? Because, <laughs> because Millie Vanilli is 
I still have the cassette of their. Album. I have. Don gave me an actual vinyl. I have a that. vinyl in my office. Yeah. Millie Vanilli. They they the most shamed duo ever in music. It's also apparently World Yoga Day. Really? There was people in Times Square this morning doing yoga. What a combination! World Yoga Day and mm. World Music Day. If we could just pair a little Millie Vanilli. No. With. I don't think anybody wants that. Nobody needs that. I should have brought yoga pants. You haven't lived until you've seen me, you know, doing hot yoga with Millie Vanilli. Why do you have to do that? Has that happened before? Every day. Every morning. That's how I rise. Over over Skype? Speaking of hot. Yeah. Phoenix yesterday. What is it? What was the temperature? It was, uh, I think it was about 120, as, as uh, it was suspected in, San, in uh, places in California. Uh, 122. What? Just crazy. But over the weekend, a Phoenix-bound flight was forced to return to Houston because weather conditions in uh, Phoenix were too hot. Passengers who were on the plane said the flight crew told them the record-breaking heat was to blame. United Flight 6186, uh, operated by Mesa Airlines, departed from Bush Intercontinental Airport. At 2.30, was minutes away from landing at Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix when the flight crew notified the passengers it would be turning around. Phoenix broke hot, hot weather records over the weekend. They got up to 117 degrees. Uh-huh. Yesterday, you got up to 120. It says uh, it is illegal for planes to land or take off once the temperature hits 120 degrees because of the effects the heat have on airplane equipment. Wow. You could ground an entire city. <clears throat> That is crazy. It is illegal for them to, to get there once it hits around 120. Well, so don't you think it should be illegal to have to do anything if it hits 120? Yeah, they should just shut down all life. The whole right. city. <laughs> like, just shut it down. Shut it down until it cools it, off. It's like the tires yeah. get too, I guess, mushy, malleable, yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. And some of the equipment inside the airplane starts acting differently under the extreme heat. Well, I guess what would have to happen is you'd have to take your flights in the middle of the night. Yeah. You just That's shut the, the airport down all day. Fly those out when it drops down to a, a balmy ninety-five. Or what they ought to do is just drive them out. That too. Just drive drive those airplanes out of there. There's certain airports that you feel like you're driving for days anyway. To get there? Have you ever been to um, Have you ever been to Denver's airport? Yes. You land. I'm pretty sure. I don't know in Iowa, mm-hmm. Kansas, somewhere, and then you drive back to the airport. It takes thirty minutes of just. Half the fuel of driving. the airplane is just driving back to the concourse. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Yeah. It's probably more like Nebraska, but I don't want to over-exaggerate. It's Nebraska, then a four-hour drive back. Hey, um, it's also, by the way, Daylight Appreciation Day, which they may not be appreciating in um, Phoenix. In Phoenix. In the southwest, yeah. They'd give anything to not have daylight for a while. Hey, Senator Lindsey Graham may have uh, – maybe he's a prophet. Could be. He has a little uh, quote we wanted to play that – is interesting because maybe he knows something we don't know. See if you can pick up on this. So Jack and I had a conversation. The next president, whoever he or she, most likely she's going to be. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> He's now, talking Lin- about something completely yeah. unrelated yeah. and just kind of drops that Hypothetically, whoever he or she, mostly she's going to be. He has gone from competing against Donald Trump yeah. to having a cell phone Broadcasted across the world, <laughs> essentially. Cell number. To, uh, you know, f- 
you know, can't compete against him, falls out, says eventually, okay, I'll fine, I'll support him kind of yeah. reluctantly yeah. to now he's totally against him. I can't support him and Hillary Clinton's probably going to win. And that's a big thing to say because he's – He's been on an emotional roller coaster over yeah. the last few months. And we're going to talk about that. you got to be careful with your emotions. That's right. Especially when you're creating legislation, which which he is doing. Um, and so that, I guess that was a jab at Donald Trump. But uh, Vice President Joe Biden, he'll also take a jab as well. And we finally moved beyond the stale ideological divides. The nations of our region are ready to work with us as never before to tackle shared challenges like stemming migration from Central America. The next administration should harness this momentum and build on it. But if we build walls and disrespect our neighbors, we'll quickly see all this progress evaporated, replaced by a return of anti-Americanism, a coercive rift throughout our hemisphere. The choices that make our region less democratic, less prosperous, and less secure actively undermine our American national interest. Now, the vice president, he's giving a speech. He's just talking about immigration, working with other countries, tosses in the little wall reference and moves on. I don't know if that's the right process to go after Donald Trump. Do you have to be more overt? Not not even overt. Do you have to be more just out in the open about it? Yeah, I think. Do you need to call him, you know, go after him directly? Or do you think this is well, this is him being presidential, right? So this is Joe Biden saying, I'm not going to get in the I'm not going to get in the fight with him. Yeah. I'm just going to slowly, subtly say it in a way that it's like a dog whistle that only certain people can hear or certain animals can hear. Donald can't hear that. It's not abrupt enough. It's not in your face enough. Hmm. It was just subtle. It was just a nice punch to the – I think they, they should have a level of operatives that go after it in this way and yeah. then have a level of, of operatives that go after Donald Trump just, like Donald yeah, Trump would. Right. Just, just gnawing on his have leg. A, have a two-front attack. Right. I think that would be more interesting because then Donald could you know, try to pick and choose who he wants to go after, and we have this back and forth. That's he, interesting. He had a really big uh, day yesterday. Corey Lewandowski, that, uh, his past campaign manager that was also known as the brawler and yes. was getting <laughs> fights with – alleged fights with uh, reporters. Yeah, it's hard. The security footage was right. inconclusive. Uh, Corey Lewandowski now – He did get charged with uh, misdemeanor assault, so – yeah. Oh, did he? Did yeah. he? Yeah. Oh, because he he was charged, right. but wasn't like you know right. convicted. And he, you know, then he took the back seat to Manafort and all these people, and now he's he's actually out of the campaign. The pit boss, yeah. The Corey Manafort. Lewandowski gone, uh, and who knows if the pit boss fired him or the Don fired him or his kids or his daughter supposedly. Yeah, his apparently kids the Donald Jr. Over. and then the rest of Ivanka jumped in and said, "This is enough." Which he's gone. Which honestly is a, a smart move would be to play those kids a lot more. They seem to be the balance. Apparently, the office at Trump Tower was split. Like oh. literally, one side was backing Manafort, the other side backing Lewandowski. Really? And so it just turned into yeah, kind of political to. infighting in the office. Which is maybe why Donald's not raising any money. Could be. He's yeah. apparently in trouble uh, financially because he's raised hardly any money. Yeah. Uh, like 1.2, 1.3 1. million. 1.3 million to Hillary's 42 million. Yeah. For the in- individual parties. Yeah. And that's huge. And that's the money you use to raise and support the Senate campaigns that are going on across the nation. So down the ticket, 
Well, and again, I think the Koch brothers and these people are going to go just straight to the down the ticket people yeah, and just, just lay the, their money out. Skip the president. Uh, Trump, though. Uh, so so Corey Lewandowski has been fired. Um, this is uh, this is his statement about how he will continue to support Trump. Things change as a campaign evolves and a general election campaign against a very well-funded uh, giant organization like the Clinton campaign is is very different than running against uh, those smaller primary state elections, uh, even when it was a big day. So you think it was appropriate for Donald Trump to make the change and let you go? What I think is that you've, the voters have a binary decision coming up on Election Day. They can either vote for Hillary Clinton and her liberal policies, or they can put someone in place who's actually going to change Washington. And I will do everything I can to make sure that the latter of those two happens, which means Donald Trump is elected president. If I can do that from inside the campaign, it's a privilege. If I can do that from outside the campaign, that's also a privilege. It's a privilege either way. Many people feel that he has signed documents that make it so he has to say that. Really? Oh, I'm sure they tied like him Non-disclosure, yeah. be positive. But if Donald Trump wins, I'm sure they'll find a place for him somewhere. Department of Transportation. Right. Or someone, he'll go walk the dog. Right. No, that, that would be Chris Christie. Oh, Chris Christie's going to walk the dog. <laughs> he'll be the, the manservant for, uh, for Trump. Oh, they call it the body man, right? The body the guy, man. Your assistant, the guy that goes and gets everything and yeah. arranges things. That's I Chris need a Christie. mint. Here you go, Mr. President. I've got your mint for you. Interesting uh, interesting day. Lewandowski's out. And it sounds like the Trump kids are taking over, which might be a great thing. You know, they know him better. Nobody probably has more influence over Donald than his children. They just have to say, Daddy, can you not say those rude things anymore? Hey, we got a great uh, guest coming up. We're going to be talking about the emotion that hits after a tragedy like we saw in Orlando. But that emotion then gets carried forward into legislation, proposed legislation, and a lot of fighting over changes that need to be made. But is emotion the best way to make our political dis- uh, changes and to lead our political discussion? Our next guest would say no. Stick with us, folks. We're talking about policymaking after the emotional attacks in Orlando. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, emotions ran high after last week's mass shooting at a gay nightclub in Orlando, leaving 49 people dead and many, many others hospitalized. And the nation has been gripped with a number of, uh, of, of difficult emotions to try to handle. And you can see that as a country, we're trying to sort through the emotions. But one of the things that tends to happen is it, these emotions drive us to, to want change and to want change now. And uh, you can see that by, for example, a 15-hour filibuster on gun control the past weekend, the four gun bills that came up, um, and then all the rhetoric that's been thrown around. But all of this could be driving to uh, driving the, the policy and the, and the legislation or the potential legislation 
um, into not necessarily being the most effective type of legislation we may need. According to our next uh, guest, uh, Ilya Salman, he's a law professor at George Mason University and the author of the book um, Democracy and Political Ignorance. He's here today to talk to us about how emotion, especially intense emotion, may not be the best driver of good policy. Uh, Ilya uh, Salman, welcome to the Matt, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very much for having me. What an interesting time uh, of of life it seems like. We keep having catastrophes from you know and and disasters I guess and and tragedies and it doesn't matter what it is really. It's it almost from Ferguson over the last few years to um, the shootings in San Bernardino to Orlando. Over and over and over, we we have this frenzied emotion that then seemingly is going to drive to some solution in how to fix some of these issues of our world, and yet it a a lot of times doesn't seem to go anywhere, or if it does go somewhere, it doesn't seem to be productive. Talk to us about your view on you know emotion and and how it tends to drive our policy. Yes, well, it's very understandable that we feel strong emotions when terrible events like the Orlando shooting happen. Uh, but strong emotions are rarely a good substitute for careful thought about the issues. Uh, and when we feel very strongly about something and we have a powerful impulse that we got to do something about it immediately, that's historically uh, when bad and very harmful policies tend to get enacted. Uh, because we're not thinking clearly, we're driven more by our emotions, uh, and as a result, we end up uh, getting knee-jerk policies that, after the fact, we often end up regretting, uh, and that usually do little to solve uh, whatever was the initial problem that uh, drove us to adopt those policies in the first place. Yeah, and we saw this just recently, because the minute the the shooting took place, we everybody was immediately talking about guns, guns, guns. Um, or no, no guns. It's not about the guns. It's about terror, terror, terror. And then redefining w- what we call a terrorist ver- or is this about gun laws and the access to the guns? Um, one of the points you make in your Washington Post um, article is the fact that maybe we we are too ignorant of the real issues anyway, that once we become emotionally charged, like our political ignorance comes out. Yes, so political ignorance is a serious problem even when we aren't reacting particularly emotionally. Lots of data shows that most people don't follow politics closely, don't know much about the issues, and this is certainly true of the issue of gun control and also the issue of uh, terrorism, the two things that most come to mind with respect to the Orlando shooting. But it's even worse uh, when we're thinking very emotionally about something, and therefore we tend to overestimate the soundness of our judgment and the extent of our knowledge even more than we usually do. And in addition, uh, these sorts of tragedies trigger our partisan bias uh, and make it even stronger than it usually is. So in addition to obviously feeling anger at the terrorist who committed the crime, which is entirely justified, uh, these sorts of events also trigger our partisan hostility to the other party. So notice that there's a blame game going on. Mm. Uh, the conservative right will say, well, this is the left's fault because supposedly they haven't been taking terrorism and radical Islamism seriously enough, whereas the left's 
more knee-jerk impulse to say, well, this must be the, the right's fault because they haven't done enough to promote gun control. And on both sides, you uh, see fairly crude and simplistic proposals being put forward uh, that have more to do with our partisan hostility to the other side than uh, with sort of carefully thought out measures that are actually likely to solve the problem. Mm. And where does this end? I mean, we, we've had we've had many uh, shooting incidents, tragedies, and, and yet here we sit with basically it seems like the exact same problem, just maybe we're 10 feet deeper. So it's a difficult problem to solve. Overall, in the last 25 to 30 years, we've actually seen a massive reduction in crime rates and gun violence in American society as a whole. Uh, but when you have individuals who are extremely motivated and determined uh, and willing to die to carry out their attacks, uh, it's very difficult to stop them beforehand. Uh, and to the extent that it might be possible, sometimes it might require truly draconian measures that overall uh, might well cause more harm than good. Uh, so uh, I think uh, at these times, it's important to remember uh, that overall gun violence has become much rarer than it has been in the past, uh, and also that uh, while each of these tragedies is terrible, the overall risk that they create for American society is actually pretty small. Mm. The average American is far more likely to get run over by a car, many times more likely uh, than to die in one of these uh, mass shooting incidents. Uh, they're, they're even possibly as likely or a bit more likely to die in a bathtub accident. Uh, so when something is pretty rare to begin with, uh, that makes it all the more difficult to further reduce its incidence. Uh, and therefore, should lead us to think very carefully before we adopt any policies to try to reduce it that might severely impact people's civil liberties or otherwise have negative side effects. Mm. And some would just say, but Ilya, these are just common sense things. Terrorists shouldn't have guns. Um, but you, you cite some, I think, wonderful uh, other examples of you know, from Columbine to um, where the the situation where Megan's Law was enacted. Talk to us about some examples of where, you know, in our emotional response to an event, we may have gone too far. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, by the way, I completely agree terrorists shouldn't have guns. <laughs> yeah, if we could I think we all identify do. Identify the terrorists ahead of time right. with a high degree of accuracy. We should definitely... Uh, deny those people guns. In fact, we should do more than that. We should uh, try to arrest or detain them. The problem is identifying the terrorists ahead of time is extremely difficult and often impossible. Uh, and similar things have occurred with the cases that you mentioned, Columbine, uh, also Megan's Law and the like. Columbine, for those who may not remember, was the awful school shooting that occurred in 1999, uh, where two very troubled high school kids killed a substantial number of their classmates and teachers. And after Columbine, there was a national outcry, and there was a quite understandable desire to say, we can't ever let something like this happen again. So many schools ended up enacting zero-tolerance policies, which supposedly were intended to prevent this sort of shooting from occurring long before it could even happen. Uh, but what those policies end up doing uh, is they uh, punish uh, students for uh, perfectly reasonable and ordinary things, uh, often for doing things like 
bringing toy guns to schools, uh, or in one case that I wrote about last year, uh, an elementary school student in Texas was punished for uh, jokingly saying to one of his classmates that he had a ring of power like you see in The Hobbit that could make his classmate disappear. Oh, wow. So numerous students from the, even down to the elementary school level have been punished for extremely petty things that were really just ordinary childhood behavior. And meanwhile, there's little evidence, if any, that these zero-tolerance policies have actually made kids safer. Right. Uh, so this is just one example of how uh, we've overreacted. The other case you mentioned, Megan's Law, is also an example of this. About 25 years ago, uh, there was a public outcry against some highly publicized cases where sexual predators were able to kill or uh, molest uh, small children. So as a result, we enacted Megan's Law, which requires special registration uh, of uh, sex offenders. And you might think, well, of course, why shouldn't we register rapists when they get out of prison? Uh, one difficulty is that uh, this law defines sexual predators so broadly that uh, many people uh, or who are registered as sex offenders, uh, they end up getting stigmatized, even if their offense was just something like uh, downloading illegal pornography online, or in some cases, even people who uh, got convicted for statutory rapes, quote-unquote, in cases where the pers one person was 19 years old and another person was 16 or 17. So uh, a lot of the people, most of the people even who ended up getting swept up into this are not actually people who you think of when we originally heard about the cases that led to Megan's Law, that is people who actually engage in uh, truly serious sexual predation against children no. uh, and the like. And there's little, if any, evidence that Megan's Law has actually reduced the rate of sexual predation, like zero-tolerance policies. It's swept into it uh, a lot of people who uh, uh, were not originally intended to be targeted, and in both cases, a large amount of public resources have been wasted uh, with little or no results. Oh, I mean, it's it's true. I don't know if you just heard about the uh, seven-year-old boy who was suspended from a Maryland school for a Pop-Tart gun. <laughs> uh, I've not heard about that particular incident, but there are many other around the country. Yeah. It needlessly harms children, and also it wastes public resources to deal with cases like this. Uh, it should be pretty obvious that small children play at guns, uh, and that even uh, adolescents often engage in various kinds of troubling rhetoric and statements. Only an extremely tiny fraction of those people are ever going to do a school shooting. Right. Uh, and similarly, uh, only an extremely tiny fraction uh, of the people that are on supposed terror watch lists or no-fly lists and the like actually are a genuine menace to society. So to restrict the civil liberties uh, of all of those people uh, is very troubling and might not actually make us safer. To take the example of the no-fly list, for example, uh, many people uh, are on that list simply because they have names that are similar to somebody who is in some way a suspected terrorist. Uh, for example, I, I, you know, I, I have personal acquaintances who have common last names like Smith or Jones, uh, and they ended up on the uh, no-fly oh. list and had trouble getting their names off just for that reason. Yeah. Somebody else named Smith or Jones who was in some way uh, suspected. Well, and again, and then and then it makes us feel like 
we've actually done something when we may it's just it's just a facade it's not even a real fix but everyone can relax because we've we've fixed gun control or whatever the issue is and yet we haven't dealt with mental health issues we haven't dealt with all the other you know ancillary issues that have to be a, to be dealt with as well. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Ilya Salman. He is a uh, law professor at George Mason University and a regular writer for the Law and Politics blog of the Washington Post. He wrote a wonderful article we're talking about, why our emotional reactions to attacks, terrorist attacks, and other tragedies are a poor guide to policy. Um, stick with us. We'll continue the discussion on the other side of the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Everybody to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we are talking about the impact that emotions have on our policy making, and you can see it from the the um, the tragedy in Orlando, where we, I mean, and rightfully so, we should feel sad, we should be frustrated with what's going on in the country when it comes to a, a variety of issues that, that seemingly converged right there um, in Orlando from. Uh, you know, from equal rights to um, terrorism to gun control and gun laws, it all converges, creates a lot of anger, a lot of emotion, and then immediately we start trying to legislate. And in a way, politicians seem to jump right in and start throwing their ideas around, and it becomes very politicized and not necessarily the best way to create real solutions. Uh, Ilya Salman joins us. He is a law professor at George Mason University, author of Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter, and the grasp, uh, and, and, uh, and another book, The Grasping Hand. Um, wonderful insights that we're gaining from Ilya. Ilya, thank you again for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Talk to me about... Um, what we're supposed to do with it. Two things you brought up earlier were the fact that we, we tend to have political ignorance. We just don't know the issues well enough um, to, kind of, to, to understand how, how they're really playing out. And then another one is our personal bias, where we, we then tend to only look for the data that supports our pet project or our personal you know, issues or vendetta. How do we, as a general population, as a voter, how do we go forward from, let's just say on Orlando, for example, what would be a, a great uh, method for us to, to not let our bias and our ignorance get in the way, but instead find some real solutions to what happened there? So I think one way that we can at least begin to move in the right direction is if more people were to realize that we at least have these sorts of problems, and therefore, if we were to question our emotional reactions more. For example, if you haven't closely studied the issues of gun control or terrorism or immigration, then at least understand that you, in fact, have not done that and that, therefore, your emotional reactions may not be a very good guide to policy. It doesn't mean it's wrong to feel anger. It just means that it's wrong to use that anger as a guide for what to do, particularly if you're advocating relatively drastic measures that will restrict people's liberties in a substantial way. Second 
certainly if your reaction to one of these events is simply, well, it just reinforces everything that I believed before about gun control or about terrorism or whatever other issue is at stake, then there's a good chance that your reaction to this is in fact driven by partisan or psychological bias rather than by a rational assessment of the evidence. doesn't necessarily mean that your viewpoint is wrong. It just means that uh, you shouldn't immediately trust uh, your emotional reaction. You should think about, well, does the evidence really support my pre-existing view? What are the alternative explanations for what happened? What are alternative possible policy proposals? And if you find yourself simultaneously in a situation where A, you don't actually know very much about the issue, and B, your reaction just reinforces whatever it is that you believed before, that makes it even more likely that your emotions are not going to be a good guide to policy. Uh, a second thing that's worth remembering is that when you ha hear about a dramatic incident like what happened in Orlando, you want to ask, well, how frequent is this? What is actually the level of risk uh, that this imposes on us? And if it turns out that the event is very rare and that the risk is low compared to many other everyday events like car accidents and the like, that makes it more likely that there may not be much we can do to prevent these sorts of incidents that can be done at an acceptable cost. I'm not saying we should therefore do nothing. Sometimes it's still worth trying to do something about rare events to make them still rare. But the, way, the, but the more rare it is, uh, the more likely it is that our emotional reactions are going to be misleading. Mm. And, and what can our politicians do? Because they seem to be, uh, you know, fomenters. They seem to be sometimes pushing the one uh, kind of unilateral solution that doesn't necessarily fix the problem. Uh, so ideally, politicians should act in a more responsible manner than they actually do. Uh, and they should, in fact, remind us that knee-jerk reactions are a bad guide to policy. In practice, however, politicians rarely do this because they have very strong incentives to satisfy public opinion and also to play to the emotional reactions and in many cases to find ways to blame their partisan opponents for whatever the tragedy that has occurred. Uh, so while I think they should behave better than they do, mm. it's unlikely that they actually will unless and until we change their structure of incentives. Yeah. And you've written a lot, I know, on Brexit as well, British exit. Um, and it seems like this the driving up of emotion doesn't always just have to happen after a tragedy necessarily. Sometimes it can just happen on a political issue that then becomes so polarized. Yes, that's true. So even if there isn't some one specific tragedy, often our judgment about political issues is heavily influenced by ignorance and also by various kinds of biases. Often we don't really bother to find out a lot of information or think carefully about these issues. Sadly, there's a dynamic here driven by incentives as well that uh, when you vote an election, your chance of Casting a decisive vote is extremely low, maybe about one in 60 million in a presidential election, for example. So as a result, if your only reason to acquire information is to do so for the purpose of being a better voter, that turns out not to be much of an incentive at all. And therefore, most people 
don't in fact acquire a lot of information and also they often don't even make a careful effort to objectively evaluate whatever information that they do know. Uh, if you're like most people, you probably spend more time and effort acquiring information and thinking about it carefully uh, any time that you buy a car or a TV set than when you decide who to vote for for the presidency or indeed for any other political office. Because with the TV set, you know that decision, it may be objectively less important, but it will actually make a difference. The TV that you decide on will actually end up in your living room, whereas the presidential candidate you decide on, there's only a very tiny chance that your decision will actually make a difference. Mm. So there is this dynamic of ignorance and also of partisan and other kinds of biases in the way that we evaluate the information. Wow, that's scary. That's scary. I mean, really, you might make you might think a whole lot more about what you're going to eat at a restaurant than than and what you'll order at the restaurant than what you might you know who you might choose as president. Yes, that's exactly right. Boy, well, Ilya, we appreciate uh, your great work on this, and um, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Ilya Salman's his name. Again, the book is Democracy and Political Ignorance, Why Smaller Government is Smarter. And uh, just interesting insight, folks. You care more about the simple decisions of your life, but your ignorance may be killing us as a whole. Our ignorance, all of us. If we don't get our heads in the game, we may be the ones causing these problems because we're not solving them. We just make them worse sometimes. But we feel really confident that we fixed it. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, lead healthier, happier lives by hopefully being more informed. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know... We do. We're so reactive that we all of a sudden will make a rule that is is useless. (laughs) We're just going to we're going to just start making rules about whistles, for example. Have you heard about this school that has banned playtime whistles as they are too aggressive? You know, for the for decades, the end of a recess has been marked by a sharp whistle blown by whichever you know teacher was out on recess duty. And uh, before anyone had ever thought about it, you know, we used to blow whistles and kids would just pay attention to the whistle and it worked, right? But St. Monica's Catholic Primary School in England has done away with whistles. They're worried that the sound of the whistle might be too aggressive. <laughs> We're annoying. I feel aggressed. Yeah. Uh, children now have to watch out for the teachers putting their hand up. So now they just are constantly watching their teacher. And when she puts her hand up, that means, you know, time to come in. So what we wanted to do as a show is we wanted to put together some other sounds and, and just test them out on the playground with a bunch of kids. So we have a live video feed of a playground with kids. Uh, this is Dilworth Elementary in Salt Lake City, Utah. Look at the kids having so much fun. Let's just test a bunch of different uh, sounds and see if any of these sounds get the kids' attention, like the whistle did, okay? Uh, what's the first sound, Ben? 
Okay, so an air raid sound. Nope, looks like the kids are still playing. Yeah, no. See, back in the 50s and 60s, that sound right there would have you duck and cover. But not not today. What's another sound here? Mm, Mario Brothers. Nope. Nope, they're still playing. Yeah, the kids didn't even hear that one. In my day, that would have shut everyone up, right? Uh, what other sounds we got? Yeah, no. See, that would get me every time. The old yeah, hot pocket I, I was sound. pretty confident with that one. That was, ah, nothing. Uh, any other sounds? Foghorn, which... Less you know, aggressive, but right. not very but effective. But if you're, if you're a seaman, you know that sound, and you know... You come in. Yeah, time yeah. to watch out for the shore. Any other sounds? That one. Yeah, that one worked. Wow. A little message from their iPhone. Wow. See how they just shut right up. I, I don't even know if they're still out there, but they, they're quiet. They went reverend. I think they're all che- – oh, they're, actually, they're all checking their phones. <laughs> oh. Wow. That's interesting. So all we got to do if you really want to control your kids is just send them a message? So coordinate all of the parents to send messages. Right. That's what they need is just a mass email sent to everyone on the playground and come they'll all come in. right in. You don't even need to raise your hand if you're the the nun or the sister that's running the the primary school there. Don't raise your hand. Don't blow a whistle. Air raid doesn't work. Mario Brothers fog corn. None of that works. By the way, um, we should have done this before. But if anybody was aggressed by any of those sounds, oh, that's true. Um, if they felt if they felt attacked, if they felt uh, that it was um, if, that it was offensive, then then we should have given you a trigger alert to yes. warn everybody that we were going to be talking about something like a whistle. That is maybe too aggressive for them. Mm. Okay. Next time, Ben, make sure we always do a little a trigger alert. Okay. Good stuff, folks. Hey, we're here to help. We can't do everything, but we can find solutions to the schoolyard whistle. And we now know what it is. It's a very simple. You've got mail reply. You know, once you hear that, everybody f- loses focus and. Come on in, everybody. Oh, I thought I had a real message. It's almost like the equivalent of tasing somebody, yeah, except no. without the electricity. Right. It's a it's a non-electrical tase. Mm-hmm. It's a tase of the mind. Just as stimulating. We'll take a break, folks. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and uh, let's do it without so much aggression. Lose the whistles. <whistles> Thank you, Coach. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy hour number two of the program. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information you need to live healthier, happier lives. Today, how to break your addiction to work, or in Ben's case, how to get you addicted to work. (laughs) I have been trying for years to get our little Ben uh, to be addicted to his work, and uh, impossible. Well, usually people are addicted because they get paid for what they do. Matt doesn't pay us. Yeah. Yeah. It's a quote-unquote internship. 
Right. Well, and again, uh, payment is based on work. You do the work, you do good work, we get you paid. You don't do good work, Excuse we just me? give you, you know, a Slim Jim, send you on your way. What would I do appreciate the Slim Jim. <laughs> Ew. Okay. So uh, anyway, uh, I don't know how these people got on microphone, but they're here, and we got a great show for you. We're going to be talking to Rebecca Knight, how to break your addiction to work, which we need, right? How to turn off the phones, maybe, how to, how to get rid of... Uh, how to get your attention back on what matters. Heaven forbid. We'll get to that in just a few moments. Also, a lot of important headlines coming up for you, including um, some information about public pools and uh, from the CDC. We'll give you some insight into that and probably some video to boot. Also, um, we're going to be just taking the headline, headlines on, and who better to take us through the national headlines than Caitlin Thomas. Caitlin, what's going on around the rest of the country? Fill us in. Back on the topic of gun control, support for gun control reached its highest level since the Sandy Hook massacre in 2012, according to a new poll released on Monday. A new CNN poll says that 55% of Americans now support stricter gun laws in the wake of the Orlando massacre. More specifically, Matt, 92% of respondents said they were in favor of expanded background checks. 87% said guns should not get in the hands of felons or mentally unstable people. And 85% want to forbid people on the no-fly list from purchasing firearms. The latter number includes 90% of Republicans and 85% of Democrats. Hillary Clinton's national lead over Donald Trump extends across all 10 battleground states. A new survey out Monday by Monmouth University shows Clinton is seven points ahead of Trump nationally, with 47% support to his 40%. Meanwhile, Clinton is also eight points ahead, 47 to 39%, in the 10 battleground states of Colorado, Florida, Iowa, Nevada, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Wisconsin, which were determined to be contested sites using the 2012 presidential candidates' narrowing winning margins. Clinton's lead is bolstered by her overwhelmingly stronger support for minority voters and women, but Trump remains ahead with both white voters and men. Hmm. Hmm. A man was arrested at a Donald Trump rally in Las Vegas on Saturday after he attempted to grab a police officer's gun, the U.S. Secret Service reported. According to a federal agent in an unsealed criminal complaint, Michael Stephen Sanford wanted to use it to kill the presumptive Republican presidential nominee. Sanford was also reportedly in the country illegally overstaying after overstaying his visa from the United Kingdom. Sanford told officers he drove from California to kill Trump. He also practiced shooting at a Las Vegas gun range the day before. According to the complaint, he was planning an assassination attempt for a year and planned on dying while carrying it out. Wow. He's not even president, and he already people already want him dead. Man. And finally, South, Southern California is in the grip of a severe heat wave that has sent temperatures surging. Numerous places across Los Angeles and neighboring counties passed 100 degrees well before noon on Monday. The National Weather Service says the thermometer hits 121 degrees in Palm Springs by 1 p.m. Forecasters say Monday will be the peak of the heat wave, with highs in the lower deserts to be near 120 degrees. The record-breaking heat wave is blamed for at least four deaths and is making it even more difficult for crews battling wildfires in several states. Firefighters are attacking the flames from the air and on the ground. 16 large fires are burning in the west, and nearly 100,000 acres have been scorched. So everyone listening... Please drink water. It is hot. Drink water and don't start forest fires. Well, it is hot it's outside. It's way hot. Uh, especially, and I mean, it's hot in Utah. It's 98 degrees yesterday. But It hit uh, the high yesterday was 104. Where? Where well, my car hit 103. Wow, you need to roll your windows down. It was. Um, it's hot. My <laughs> sister lives in Arizona and her, she hit 117. Poor, I know. People in Arizona, we're here for you. 
we've we, you've got our prayers. We'll send you some water you guys, straight from Utah. We live in America. Utah. There's but lots of clean water here. Please drink it. That's all you'll get. We're not going down there to help or anything. Well, we're going to send Caitlin down. She'll yeah. take care of it. I will. It's a royal I think duty. the sun might scorch me. Oh yeah, it will. It will. I mean, listen to me. I'm all congested. It's a heat wave, and I have a cold. It will melt the congestion There's out. That's how it works. There's something wrong with my system. We'll get you know get some vitamin C. When you're down in Arizona, I bet they have some vitamin C grown on a tree down there somewhere. Grown on a tree. Go check it out. Is that how vitamin C Southern works? Cal has uh, vitamin C grown on trees. Okay. Yeah. I don't hey, really want to go down there. Hey, Caitlin, thanks for helping us with the news. You got uh, it. We got to get to this public pools uh, issue. The CDC has been doing studies um, for the last few years about the pools of America. And, um, you know, th- they want you to know the risks because a lot of people are going to be jumping in the pool because y- you, need to, you need to cool off, right? According to a report released Thursday, more than 84,000 routine inspections of more than 48,500 pools, hot tubs, and water parks – in 2013, across five states, turned up at least one violation 80% of the time. So the pools that they've studied over in 2013 um, had 80% of those pools had a violation. But the violation, um, the most common violation, were problems with the pool's pH level. So it may have just been too chemically charged. The pool was, The pool was too acidic, so to speak. And uh, the concentration of the disinfectants to uh, weren't – they maybe were too high. So they they either needed more in, infect, infected in, – what's the word? Infectious materials in they the pool. They needed to dilute it a little bit. Yeah. So it was too chemically uh, packed, which means the people weren't doing their job. <laughs> I mean people. We can't do everything for you. We clean your pool. We put (laughs) chemicals in the pool. You need to do your job. You need to dirty that pool up a bit. And you could do it just by not showering before you get in. I never shower before I get in. (sighs) That is sick. You need to shower. I am part of the solution. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You're You're trying to help people. We actually have video of a woman getting in the pool. And it's the it's the weirdest sound, but we're gonna you know we like to play the video for you so that you can you can see and experience getting in a a, a, a pool with with too many chemicals. I'm melting, melting. Oh wow! Oh, wow! Holy cow! Whew. Sorry, I should have checked that before. That was violent. That was a little graphic. Why was she wearing a black witch outfit? Um, I think she was trying to dirty the pool up a bit. Man. She, did you see her skin was green? Well. She had green skin. I'm not sure it was really green. It had like a little, maybe she was a little bit sick from the chemicals. I don't know. It was green. I mean, she looked green. Great dive. Holy cow. Great dive. That lady can dive. Perfect swan dive. Boy, the acid though. (laughs) Did, did she get out of the pool after? No, I just saw her like. Yeah, no, they just they just no, they got that little net thing and just yeah. scooped up her wow. her witch outfit. I think she melted. Well, that that dilutes the pH levels. Yeah, it was really weird. Uh, the did you see the the people she came in with? A, a, a lady and a dog. Yeah, 
Yeah. Really, really nice red shoes, by yeah. the way. But in fact, yeah. the lady, though, didn't seem to care much for the, for the lady. Well, everybody line. around the, the pool started singing. It was yeah. crazy. Ding dong. The witch is dead. Ding dong might be a little bit too aggressive. I think they may. Yeah, let's not do a ding dong. Just the witch is dead. <laughs> By the way, if you're a witch, you shouldn't be swimming at these pools. Uh, that's sad. I mean, it's a good thing, right? You'd think the pools would just be so disgusting, but no. The pools, instead of being disgusting, they're just so high chemically charged that you may burn. You may burn from the chemistry. Hey, um, other interesting stuff going on that we got to get to, for heaven's sakes. Yesterday, we talked about a story that was out about Justice Thomas that he may retire. And Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, said, what? He is not retiring. She was mad. She basically said, that's just, it's all, it's, it's just bogus. He is Jenny Thomas, summarily dismissed Sunday's lightly sourced report in the Washington Examiner, which originally headlined, End of a Conservative Supreme Court. Clarence Thomas may be next to leave. She said uh, he is not mulling retirement over. For all those who are contacting me about the possibility of my husband retiring, I say unsubscribe from those false news sources and carry on with your busy lives. It is bogus. So you can rest assured that uh, Justice Thomas is on the case, even though he probably won't speak in court. But that's exactly what she'd want you to think if they wanted to drop a bombshell on you. So you're a conspiracy theorist. No, I'm – this is real. This is just like all those Twitter feeds that say they were hacked when Jack Black died and – Yeah. Okay. You need to just – you need to quit – Watching all that stuff. No, 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 no. I think this is real, though. No. No. You're wrong. (laughs) Just stay focused. Here's another crazy story. Did you hear about Netflix? They changed their logo. They have a brand new icon. You will not believe what it is. It is the craziest icon you've ever seen. It's an N. It's a big red N. It's bold, though. It's a bold icon. But it's still just an N. People are like worried. What if will this make a difference? No, it's an N. I don't go to Netflix for their logo. I go to Netflix for the flicks delivered through the net. Terry, did you see that? Yeah, I saw that this morning. Not sure why anyone's concerned. They changed the logo, but well, but what they if start, they start changing pricing? Yeah. That's when you're concerned. What if they have to change the price because the N costs so much money to make? That could be a concern. I don't know. Yeah. Folks, it's a logo change. Relax. You'll still be able to watch your shows. So when you have a ailment of some kind, mm-hmm. so you're getting up there. You're advancing in age. Uh, and there's uh, uh, hold there, it. there's Aren't ailments. We there's a well, yeah, you specifically. Yeah. Um, there's ailments that keep showing up. Mm-hmm. You had some plantar issues that you've gone on and yep. on and on about, and you'll yeah. come in here and say, "Do you ever go to WebMD?" Oh yeah, all the time. Kind of check that out and see if you can self-diagnose. Yeah. Oh yeah. Whenever uh, I do, I'll have like cold symptoms, and it'll tell me I have cancer. Yeah, sir, you have a congenital birth defect. Yeah, it's, what? It really goes the wrong direction rather quickly, <laughs> mainly because I don't think I'm the best at self-diagnosing. See, here's the deal: because I'm a doctor and a past EMT. Well, I know 
I can diagnose you using WebMD really well. When you say doctor, you got a doctor, dr. Uh, of what? But like a feelings a doctor, doctor. Of not, philosophy. Not, yeah, you're a feelings doctor. Yes. You're one of these soft, squishy instead of. But like, I was also an EMT, so I could uh, I could okay, so revive you, can, you. So you could put a band aid on maybe my knee. Pop, you know, do a trachea or something. I could I could I could fix your eye if your eye popped out. I know how to. <laughs> I know how to prepare your just, eye for transport. Just give me a spoon. We'll pop it back in. <laughs> well, the reason I bring it up, over the yeah. next few days, Google is rolling out a feature called Symptom Search, which is designed to show better results on the Google app for iOS or Android, a search that includes descriptions like child with knee pain will return a list of related conditions. Typing headache will show general description of your problem, options for self-treatment, and suggestions on whether or not you should go see a doctor. Many search results will show you a condition card, which Google launched last February, and these may not uh, include illustrations. They may, they may not. Hmm. Other search results will appear as cards that you can swipe or drop down, menus that can tap, and you can see more info. They say about 1% of of its searches are symptom-related, so it wanted to do a better job of sending people useful results. So who do you think is going to be better, WebMD or Google? In misdiagnosing whatever your problem is, because uh, <laughs> I don't think this is going to work. I it will. I think it will always misdiagnose because they can't diagnose. Only doctors. They're trying to help you, you, though. I know. No. Now they're talking about scraped knees and headaches. Do you think yeah. it'll go further than that? Oh yeah, you've got a brain tumor in your front parietal lobe. What? I, I, Holy cow, honey! I said I had a runny nose. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> All I, th- I just thought I had a headache. No, no, you're dying, sir. Yeah, I don't think it's it, – you can't use that stuff. But it, to, it can it – can, it can, basic stuff, like if you have qu- lower left quadrant pain, mm. it could tell you at least where your appendix is and where your whatever is. And or just walk it off. Yeah, just shake it off, Larry. That'll be the diagnosis. Walk it off. You're okay. But in the end, you should <laughs> always go, go seek – Real medical care. Yeah. Or if not, you know, call your local witch and see if she's got a fix for you. Or anybody. The reality is the information's there now, but uh, it's not going to replace a proper diagnosis. If you want a proper diagnosis, listen to this show. We're diagnosing things left and right. Only for feelings, though, right? No, Ben. Do you listen to the show? Today, for example, we're not talking about feelings. We're talking about how to break your addiction to work if you had one. I just want to make sure that the the listeners of the show aren't getting misinformation from a doctor that's not qualified to Holy cow. I'm I'm just looking oh, after the listeners. Boy. I am about to come unglued and jump right <laughs> over this table. We'll take a break. Stick with us folks. If Ben's still around, we can talk about addiction to work. Up next, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, for many of us, working simply feels good. But just because it feeds your ego or makes you feel important, or even satisfied, that doesn't mean that it's actually good for you. How do you break the cycle of working long hours at the office and constantly checking email at home? How do you persuade those around you similarly uh, who are work-obsessed 
like a demanding boss or a work-obsessed colleague that uh, working all the time isn't healthy for you. Well, joining us is Rebecca Knight. She's a journalist and employee herself. She joins us this morning to talk about how to find a healthy balance between work and home life so that both become much more enjoyable. She wrote a wonderful article on the topic. Uh, Rebecca Knight, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Great to have you on the show. Man, this this being a workaholic, it's one thing, I guess, to, to feel like a love of your work so much, but some of what's happening to us that makes us so addicted is the, the, the workplace seems to just keep kind of taking over more and more of my life through my phone, through my um, through expectations. That is true, but 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 it's really important to to acknowledge the fact that you're also letting it exactly. Take over. Um, you are owning picking up me. your phone every time you hear that ding or ting that makes you feel needed, makes you feel important, makes you feel wanted. Talk about the the research in this area. Um, I know you cited a lot of it in your in your work, and what what are they finding out? Is is it that I'm giving up so much of my power? Is it just that a phone has become sens- such a central part of my life that I don't distinguish between work and home? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's I mean, there's part of it. There's there's the research, and then there's just sort of the common sense about it. Is that the phone is this addictive thing. It, it, it does, um, it, it is your pathway to the outside world. And so if you ever have a down moment or just a moment where you want to feel needed, want to feel important, you can reach for it and it will give you that feeling of satisfaction. Um, but the research, there are piles of research that show that this is not good for us. Um, it's not healthy for us. And, and it's also really not good for our relationships with people in our family, with our friends, in our community. Man, that's – I mean, it's – we knew that, right? It, like you said, it, our gut tells us that it's not quite right. But uh, as, a, as a relationship coach, I see it all the time. People just can't turn off their phones they or they won't turn off their phones. They absolutely can. And in your book or in your article, How to Break Your Addiction to Work, you walk us through – um, some some shifts, some tools that we can use to help us to maybe take back our life and to to shut down a little bit of the addiction. Talk to us about um, some of the some of the ideas, some of the tools we can do to take our lives back. Sure, sure. Because I think that the other thing, and you you just talked about this too, in terms of you seeing it all the time with your clients, is that when you do pick up your phone or you take a call or you send a text or you send an email, I mean, you're thinking, oh, I need to do this now. Um, My colleague needs to hear from me. My boss needs me to respond. But you are saying to the person you're with, whether it's your child, your spouse, your friends, um, you are less important to me. This is more important you are not as important. So I think that's the, one of the first uh, steps is, yeah. is really acknowledging that that's not the message you want to be sending, particularly to your partner and your loved ones and your children. Um, you want to be telling them they're important. That's so um, true. Because it's a subtle <laughs> statement, right? So you, all of this is, Matt. It is so much common sense, and it is, of course, um, but it is but it is hard to do. It's hard to do. So the first step really is to redefine success. Um, and that's really thinking about what it means to live a full life. Of course, you want to do well in your job, and you want to, um, and you want your boss to think you're doing a good job. You want your colleagues to respect you and to acknowledge that you're pulling your weight. Um, but the research shows, at the end of the day, and, not, and again, it's not just research; it's also just human beings. 
at the people on their deathbed in terms of what they think about, in terms of their life, their full, their whole life. It is the relationships they had, um, the impact they had on other people. So it's not just about um, getting the next raise or promotion or attaboy from your boss. It really is about thinking about what it is to be successful, and that is to have a good relationship with your kids, to have a loving relationship with your, with your partner or your spouse, to have um, physical and emotional well-being, to, to, to do good in your community and in your world. So really thinking about success in that way, not just in terms of your status and your paycheck. So that's yeah. really one of the first steps. Well, yeah, because we, we've kind of been taught our whole life it's about being upwardly mobile, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, every team, you've got to be better, get to a better team team, conquer that team, get to high school, play the sports, get to college. I mean, it's always like this this competition to be the best, the best, the best, the best, the best. And now then you get to the workplace and now we're telling you, okay, now go focus on your family. <laughs> but it's like we, we haven't been conditioned that way. Right. No, no, no. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's just so, tragic. It is. So it is. So, so it's redefining success and to understand that being a successful person means doing a good job at work, but it importantly means doing being a good person to your to your being a good parent, being a good spouse, being a good community member, all of those things too. So it's not just thinking about um, not just measuring your entire self worth in your um, in your workplace, and you really need to have high quality relationships and engagement in your community. Yeah, interesting. Um, so so you get the you kind of get the redefinition down. Mm-hmm. And then and the next thing what? is about really paying attention to where you want to devote your time and your energy. Um, you know, you, energy and your attention is your most precious asset in this world that where things are just coming at you and we are expected to be on 24-7. So it's really being deliberate about where you're focusing um, and this is one of the things that you talked about when you first were first introducing this topic is that we're constantly multitasking. We're, we're sort of out watching a soccer game, watching our kids' soccer game, but we're also emailing. We're um, on a movie on a movie date with our spouse, but we're also um, texting our friend, mm. or we're checking scores, or we're you know talking to our boss. So this is the thing, really, is that it is being deliberate and saying, "I'm with you. I am here. I am fully present. I'm I'm not on my phone." And and actually choosing that and choosing that and really and putting away your phone not getting out your phone not uh-huh. bringing your phone with you everywhere you go um th- those are the those are the ways and i keep talking about this addiction to work because it really is an addiction to your smartphone um more than anything uh right now that yeah well and it's and again it's like your article talks about it's um it's a morally worthy concept right so who i mean it's it's important to have a job and to be good mm-hmm. at it so it has this weird identifiable you know validation for me um and yet when i walk in my house like you said if i'm not able to turn it off then i am telling everyone else in the room where they fit in my life Right, exactly, exactly. And that is, as we said, n- not the message you want to be sending no. um, to, to, the, to your loved ones and to your friends because, because work 
I mean, it, it's hard because we all, we live in this world where work does bleed into other things. And, um, and in some ways that's, that's a good thing that we, that, that work is not this compartmentalized thing because your colleagues are your second family and they, and you can develop important, meaningful connections at work. Um, but at the same time, we, it, 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 your job is not you. You are not your job. Your job is not you. And yeah. that is an important thing to, to bear in mind when you are thinking about where you want to devote your time, what deserves your attention, what deserves your energy. Man, this is um, – I think it's just good. It's good to to take take common sense but then get real with it like you're teaching us. Again, we're speaking with Rebecca Knight who wrote an article, How to Break Your Addiction to Work, which is in Harvard Business Review. She's also published in the New York Times, the USA Today, and the Financial Times. We'll take a break, come back, and continue this discussion with Rebecca about uh, some other ways you can break your addiction to work. you got to redefine what work is, why it's important, what success is, and refocus your attention. Become intentional, as we're learning from Rebecca. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about resetting expectations, maybe doing a little digital detox, which could be so painful, but so valuable. Stick with us, folks, giving you the tools, the information you need to uh, take your life back. Heaven forbid that you get in the now and become now in your life. How powerful could that be? We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Rebecca Knight. Rebecca is a, a, a freelance journalist in Boston and a lecturer at Wesleyan University, where she also teaches writing courses. She has written many pieces focused on personal finance and business education. Rebecca wrote a wonderful article um, that we found in Harvard Business Review called Work-Life Balance, How to Break Your Addiction to Work. And she's walking through some of the, the research as well as just the common sense lessons that she has learned about how to break the work addiction. Um, and Rebecca, we welcome you back to the program. Thanks. I'm having a lot of fun. Is this is this an interesting topic for you? Because you probably, you relate to it as well, don't you? I, we all, don't we all, though, Matt? Totally. I mean, this is the thing that the, the living in this digital era um, with the world's information at our fingertips, it's just, it's hard not to... Uh, to, to want to be to want to be interacting with it, yeah. And so and so, but the problem is is that as we as you've been talking about, it is it can be a detriment to your relationships and to your health and well being if you are constantly um, constantly online and not and not really taking the time to to recharge to reset. You know, if you're if you are constantly online, constantly thinking about work, your next task, your next chore, your next project, you're not ever having time to daydream and to, and to sit back and, and think long-term and strategically about where you're going next, not just what is the next thing. So mm. that's an important thing to remember, too, in the sense of getting ahead in your career 
um, you know, don't just do this for your sake of your relationships and your, and your spouse and your kids, but really think about this, too, in terms of your career. Because if you are just focused on the next project, you aren't thinking long-term about what's next for you in your life. And is that, I mean, that's important. You're, you're running a marathon here, right? It's not a right, sprint. exactly, exactly. And you're exactly. going to be burnt out by the time you're 30, <laughs> by the time yeah. you're 40. You'll just be a vegetable sitting on the couch eating Cheetos. Right. I mean, it's a bad visual, but but I mean, it, that's what you're saying, though, right, is is look at this as a long term play. And yet, um, you know, so it's not like you just have to slow down and not perform. You can perform, but you also can't expect yourself to be a, a superhuman. One of your great quotes in there said uh, or um, I think this may have been from uh, Blair Loy said, you shouldn't have superhuman expectations. Well, exactly, exactly, um, and th- and that is and that is one of the the, the, mo- the important things too, in the sense of you can't be working all the time, um, and if you are, as you said, you're going to burn out. So you need to make sure that you have regular, predictable time off, and not only, I mean, there's just, I mean, especially as we're we're nearing summertime, and there's so many indications that Americans, you know, we get the smallest number of vacation days of any developed country and americans don't even take all their vacation days I mean, no insane that is time. we used to laugh at the japanese because their work week was so horrible and now mm, i think right. we're, ours is worse worse exactly exactly oh what's so, happening so take to us that time. Take hey, that time. you also in your article um you talk about uh the digital detox mm-hmm. and I mean, a lot of times I've tried a digital detox, and quite honestly, Rebecca, I got the shakes, and so yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't shake it off. So, yeah. so talk about some ideas about uh, how to go through a detox with your phone. Well, I mean, it, I mean, the fact of the matter is, you have to, you, you're going to need help. You just, I mean, if you were addicted to anything, you can't do it alone. You can't break this alone. So you need. Matt, I hope you enlisted friends I did. and family. My wife. Once okay. I once and, I told my wife, she, she was... She, she let you crack? Yeah, well, no, 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 no. But it got really tense. <laughs> we had to call in. <laughs> We're not going to go there today. She had but, to have a lot um, of treats around. Let's just say that. <laughs> but, I, but that's the thing, is that you need, to, um, you need to put your phone away. You need to not turn your phone on. And you need your friends and family's help and saying, this is what I'm trying to do and explain to them why you're trying to do it. So it's not just, oh, I want to, I want to be less dependent on my phone. Actually spell out why you want to do this, why it matters to you and why it matters to them. Because, uh, you know, uh, talking about the, the messages that you're sending to your, to the people around you when you're on your phone and not paying attention to them, say, I want to be more present in our conversations. I want to be able to stop and smell the roses. I want to make sure I am fully acknowledging the beauty of the world and, and really in, or engrossed in your, our conversation or engrossed in this movie that we're watching, not constantly thinking about, oh, does anyone need me at work? <laughs> Is my boss calling me? Um, how did that project turn out? So, so you need to explain to them why it matters to you and also why it's in their best interest to help you. That's a... I mean, really, that's that's the way to do it. And I've even seen doing it as a family um, mm-hmm. kind of makes mm-hmm. it even more valuable. Or we're going to be doing a family trip this year, and during the trip, we're going to do a major digital detox. Yes, 
Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you're talking about how you got, you got the shakes when you first started to do it. It is hard. It is hard at first because we have these sort of little twitchiness to us now. With any down moment we have, we're waiting in line at the post office. We're, um, you know, we're waiting for the bill at a restaurant. We're, you know, any down moment, we, we reach for our phone t- to fill the time. Oh. And, and, we, and we're not stopping to smell the roses. And, and, that's, and that is what's, what's really sad right now. Well, talk, it's weird because when, you know, if I had to go, let's say, to the post office and um, wait in line and I knew I'd wait in line, I might, I guess, take a book, right? And mm-hmm. taking mm-hmm. a book to read would be so valuable and, and everyone is so noble almost. Like, wow, you're really <laughs> taking care of your seconds. But, Look at that smart guy. Right, right. But if I pull my phone out and I'm reading a book on my phone – it's still, it's not as no, it's not as noble in a way. It's like I'm still, yeah. but what you're saying isn't. It's like the last thing we maybe need to do is fill more time. You're saying we need to just be more present, be more right. mindful in the moment. Right. Just stand there and take in the post office almost. Let your mind wander. Let you know, and even think about work if you need to, but don't don't be so online about it. You yeah. Know? Really just ponder a project, ponder a career move um, while you're in line and, and, and think and think deeply about it I rather love than think in this sort of surface, shallow way. Well, and it is. It's, we've become a robot. So the minute mm-hmm. I have a second, my brain automatically wants the dopamine of either playing the New York Times crossword puzzle – yeah. Or finding my Netflix shot or you know option, but it's mm-hmm. it's going to just give me ten more things to do. Let alone right. check my email. Let alone finish that activity. So it, maybe that's that, and that is one of the points of your detox is just hide the phone. Hide and, the phone, and and it's and it's so important to do this when you get home in terms of um, in terms of your relationships. There is a lot of evidence that shows that even if you and I are talking, sitting at the dining room table, having dinner, and my, my phone is just on the table, we're actually com- we're having a conversation, we're eating dinner, just the mere presence of my phone means we're not going as deeply with each other huh. because we are both constantly aware that at any moment I could be interrupted, that at any moment I could hear a ping or a ting and think, oh, I, my, I need to devote my attention elsewhere. I'm sorry, Matt, but yeah. um, the spaghetti meatballs is delicious, and what you're saying is, is so interesting, but I'm needed elsewhere. And so there's just research that shows that the mere presence of that phone affects the, uh, what we're talking about and how deeply we talk about it. So, so it really is important to not just not just, not, not just to sort of say, oh, I'm not looking at my phone, but to really... Put it in the other room. Put it in a drawer. Don't even have it around. Yeah. And because I guess, too, it's part of this is we're, we're really not growing deeper roots in the relationship mm-hmm. or in our lives. We're growing kind of a really shallow root base. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it's also, you know, just in terms of going back to the workplace, too, um, and I make this point in my column, you know, Younger people at the office, the more junior employees, are looking to you. They're looking to see, how do I get to be a manager? How do I get to be a leader? And if, even if it is normal, completely normal in your organization that people are in meetings and tapping away on their laptops or looking at their phones, um, 
it is rude and it's disrespectful. And so if your junior employees look at you and see what you're doing, and then they go off and do it at a client meeting, or they're going off and talking to customers oh. and doing that, you need to be, you need to understand they learned it by watching you. Yep. And so, um, and so think about that too, when you are dealing with, with junior employees. Holy cow. Now I'm really on. <laughs> I think I'm scaring it's, you now you're scaring me. Because I usually take a nap during the day, and so now i got to stop doing that, too. They're all looking at me like, why can't we nap? Anyway. Um, One of the things that I didn't realize, too, um, and I mean, I I did realize it. It's just, again, we don't focus on it, is the health issues of this. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so by prioritizing technology and work last – I am allowing my health and my nutrition and my sleep and my exercise mm-hmm. to take the take the front seat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So you need to be. I mean, you can't be productive and creative if you are working constantly. You just can't, and you certainly can't do it without getting enough sleep, getting eating good wholesome foods, and moving your body. And so that's the other problem with being addicted to work. And this is, you know, I mean, it's also just not good for your eyes to be looking at a screen all day, but, um, but it's, it's just really not good for your overall health to be so consumed by work. So that mm. is an important thing, too, Does... to prioritize your health. And I mean, I guess just for all of us, this is this is just life, right? And this is the new technology, but we've probably never had a more intrusive technology that because this is a technology like when we used to have the when the television came out, it was so heavy in a big wood box. It had to stay pretty much in the living room. But Mm -hmm. now we have this phone. That eventually, like I, Rebecca, this may sound crazy, but I use my phone to to chart my sleep, mm-hmm. and it is basically under my pillow. <laughs> it's wow. it is so close to me, but eventually, it's it is every part of our life. It goes in the bathroom with us. It goes mm-hmm. everywhere with us, and so we may we may be on this cutting edge of and not really even understanding fully this the impact that this is going to have to everything about us. But the little research we have... We don't know the long-term effects of this kind of technology. And, you know, I I can't even speculate on them, but we can... But it goes back to the common sense. It would, you know, using the phone to chart every single thing about our bodies, I mean, I don't know. No, it's scary. It's really really helpful to have that. And I think it's probably great that you get to know, okay, here's the way I'm sleeping. Here's the way my biorhythms are are acting. And here's what happens when the temperature rises or or I'm feeling ill. You know, that's that's helpful information to have. And if it can help you become a more healthy person, great. But I think there does become a time where you just say, do I need this? Yeah. I, I probably was getting along just fine without it. Um, anyway. now, now, now I have a watch that <laughs> exactly. is connected to my – and eventually I'll have a pacemaker that's connected to my watch that's connected. So, um, I mean, I think, it was a, I think it's an awesome article. Everybody needs to read it. If, if we had to kind of uh, chalk it up to one point, Rebecca, what would you say is the one thing that we all need to remember to get that work-life balance back? Be deliberate. Think about how you want to spend your time and with whom you want to spend it. And that's it. That's all I'm going to say. Full stop. Be deliberate. Full stop. 
Yeah. Man, Rebecca, great work. Keep writing. Keep doing your your. Thank you. Keep thank giving you. back. Uh, Rebecca Knight, thank you so much. Thanks. It was great to be here. You bet. Again, look for Rebecca's articles in the New York Times, USA Today, the Financial Times, also Harvard Business Review. It's just it's got it all and uh, in depth, right? And that's what we want. Um, it's your life, folks. We got to balance it, or we will regret it. And I don't want to guilt any of us, but. We don't want to make that mistake. You've only got one life to live. Let's live it. We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. It's my house. Come on. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome to my house, folks. Welcome back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, one of the problems with not having a work-life balance is it's going to negatively impact your work, right? I've got, a, I've got, I've got evidence. I've got evidence. Listen to this little uh, diploma printing mistake that embarrasses a high school. Graduates at a California high school received a final reminder that uh, that you know school's important, folks. You got to get you got to do it right. Right. When they received their diploma covers and it was the diploma cover was bearing the name Ontario High School. But the word school was spelled wrong. Oh, so come on. I know it says Ontario High School. The typo went out with a printing error. That uh, was made by grad. Uh, that was that made and uh, that was made by the whoever printed these products. Five hundred and fifty graduates received a, a letter with a new diploma, basically, and an apology letter saying, "We are so sorry that we spelled school wrong." <laughs> Again, I'm going to bet that was somebody that's overworked, underpaid, stressed out of their head. And still using a dot matrix printer. Wow, you know your printer. Oh, yeah. I've been around a long time. Anyway, you got to be careful, folks. Especially when you're printing the diploma for Ontario High School. It's a very good school. Got to be careful. Yeah, maybe somebody had a lisp and that's how they honestly thought it was spelled. Yeah. I doubt it. I think it was just a misprint. But then there's like, you done graduated from the school. And then off they go and you realize maybe our education's not what it's cracked up to be. Um, that's that's a simple error. We, and we do it all the time. I think Rebecca Knight made a great point for all of us to remember when it comes to your time, you – because it's such a finite resource that you, however you handle time is going to um, communicate not only what is important to you, but what's not important to you. And so one of the things I, I guess I would just challenge us all to do is to recognize that and become intentional like she's talking about and actually make an evaluation of your own life. As she was talking, I sat there and I thought, man, I'll walk in my house and if all my family are there, literally I could have a TV on and five people on cell phones. And everyone's – I mean a lot of them are doing great stuff. Some of them are just doing dumb stuff. 
but a lot of them are reading good books and 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 watching you know TED talks and wonderful things. Um, but at some point, though, if I'm choosing my technology, I'm probably not choosing my relationship. So can I just challenge you to take the advice of Rebecca Knight and go on a little digital detox sometime this summer with your family? Get everybody used to, again, the days when we just turn the stuff off and we do something together. Um, it used to be that when we'd watch movies as a family, people were always frustrated because no one's talking during the movie. We're not. We're, so we're not even spending good quality time together. But now we we can actually all watch a movie together and still not even be in the same movie because we're all using technology. Let's make relationships important again by just putting them first. Do a digital detox. Put your phone away. And as a leader at your office, don't pull it out. Don't pull your phone out. Don't have it with you. Don't turn to it every chance you get. See if you can just put it away for a while. Interesting stuff, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you hopefully have a relationship that lasts longer than your cell phone plan. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. We're coaching you through life. Nobody was born with an owner's manual. You weren't. You didn't have one. So guess what? You got to get one. And on this show, we'll bring you the latest, the greatest research, the latest uh, thoughts, information you need to get through this crazy thing we call life. Today, no exception, uh, third hour of the program, and we've got a great uh, topic coming up. Uh, Ron Hager will be joining us uh, talking about reversal of memory memory loss in Alzheimer's patients. And... um, how to some of the latest research about reversing that memory memory loss, which is um, Alzheimer's is bad deal, man. It's a bad uh, it's a bad disease that's impacted my family quite a bit. Uh, just lost my mother in law to Alzheimer's, um, and so uh, wanted to get into this subject as well. We'll be talking about that with Ron in a few moments. Also, we're going to uh, be talking about other parts of the day. Hello, did you know, for example, it's skateboarding day. Go skateboarding day, uh, which is the day when everybody gets a chance to say, dude, dude, nice ollie. Does it feel better now, Matt? Is that in skateboarding, an ollie? I don't think so. Uh, It's also, by the way, selfie day. Uh, for the vain and selfish to just take pictures of themselves, which we all appreciate, uh, duck lips and stuff like that. And also day, Daylight Appreciation Day, where you can look to the sun and just appreciate its uh, its wonderful rays. Also, it's World Music Day. Mm-hmm. Yes. Millie Vanilli. So Who better? Authentic. Who better to ring in uh, World Music Day? Sure, Beethoven, Mozart, not us, Millie Vanilli. I can't think of anyone better. Millie Vanilli! Huh. 
Good memory. The Nixon of the rec- of the record recording industry, the Richard Nixon. Hmm. Such a good guy. Richard was a good guy. So were Millie and Vanilli. <laughs> anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, we have got a lot to cover. We will get into the work with Ron Hager on reversal of memory loss in Alzheimer's patients. But first, let's get to the headlines with Caitlin Thomas. Find out what's coming, uh, what's out in the news here locally. Caitlin, what's up? All right, Matt. Well, here we go again with our gun control issues. The four competing gun proposals put forward in the Senate all failed to earn a majority of votes on Monday night. Similar versions of these proposals failed to pass in the Senate after the terrorist attack in San Bernardino last year. Lawmakers voted 43 to 47 for a Republican proposed background check plan and 44 to 56 for the Democratic proposed one. Both failed to earn the 60-vote majority. And another motion requiring background checks at gun shows failed, too, with a 44 to 56 vote. A measure would allow the attorney general to deny firearms to suspected terrorists also failed. These measures come just a week, of course, after the most fatal shooting in United States history took place in Orlando. And Apple CEO Tim Cook is hosting a fundraiser for House Speaker Paul Ryan next week after the company announced it would not contribute to the Republican National Convention thanks to Donald Trump. The billionaire Republican recently called for a boycott of Apple over its refusal to develop software to unlock the San Bernardino terrorist's iPhone. Cook has helped to fund both Democrats and Republicans in the past. Next week's event, a private breakfast to be held in Menlo Park, California, will benefit not only Ryan but all House Republicans via a joint fundraising committee. President Obama has faced numerous roadblocks from Republicans preventing him from following through on his pledge to close the U.S. prison camp at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. But the latest obstacle comes from his own attorney general, Loretta Lynch, according to senior administration officials. At least twice in the past three months, Lynch has recently stepped in to block a proposal to allow certain inmates to plead guilty in U.S. federal court via video conference, thus averting a ban on Guantanamo inmates coming to the U.S. mainland instituted by congressional Republicans. Those inmates would then be imprisoned in a third country. Okay, Matt, with all of the sad and negative headlines, I found a happy one for you to end off today on. It's about a little girl named Juliana Snow. She was a five-year-old girl who knew how, to leave le- knew how to leave a legacy. Juliana had been diagnosed with an incurable neuromuscular disease mm. and had been facing complications since she was born. She had spent months undergoing hospital treatments but finally decided to quit treatment. It wasn't going to work. Before passing away in her own bed surrounded by her family, Juliana, the five-year-old, asked if her funeral would not be a sad occasion but a celebration. Family and friends gathered together in Vancouver, Washington on Saturday in floral print dresses, pink polos, brightly colored boas, and sparkly bolero ties in Juliana's honor. There was also a cupcake bar. Ooh. Yeah, complete with a tea party. Ooh. Juliana knew her life would be short but told people she never wanted it to be anything more... Anything less than fabulous. So she had a party. A, a she had kind a party of, for a funeral. A going her away motto, party. I like her. Her motto was, there is no such thing as too much glitter. That, that, you said that this was a positive story. Yeah. Well, I mean, she passed away, but she wanted people to remember her, to remember that life is happy. Yeah. And no, that's okay totally. to face trials. I just went to a funeral of a wonderful woman that passed away and hers was a celebration as well see we're celebrating mm-hmm. her life not the death but don't you ever worry that like if i died today like they there might be a celebration as well i mean you want mm-hmm. you want it to be sad and you want them to bring casseroles don't get me wrong right but i'll bring jello okay jello's great um but i i want it to be 
I wanted I, – I don't want people to just sit there I want there, there to and, be like a pinata. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pin the tail on the donkey. donkey. I want people to be having a party. So I don't this know. cute little five-year-old, she gets That's it. Cute. She was five. She got it. She got it. That's really cool. She gets more about life than most of, most of us adults. Good story. Yeah. Good story. Yeah. Thanks for the news, uh, Welcome. Caitlin. I'm out of here. Caitlin Thomas, she's out. I'm out. Um, we got a great show coming up. Uh, reversal of memory loss in Alzheimer's patients um, with Ron Hager. He'll walk us through some of the latest and greatest research there. But <laughs> we got to get to a, a story that just struck me funny. And I don't know why, but uh, there's a California man being held in the Mendocino County Jail for allegedly firing a shotgun outside a neighbor's home during a wheelbarrow heist. So he's apparently walking in the rain here, as you can see, uh, with a wheelbarrow. And Bradley Nystrom, 46, was booked into county jail on suspicion of a robbery carrying a loaded firearm in public and discharging the shotgun within 500 yards of an occupied dwelling. According to the Mendocino County Sheriff's Office, a woman and her 14-year-old daughter were, were inside the home when the incident occurred. Sheriff's officials said the woman told deputies she was preparing a meal for them about 11.40 a.m. when she heard a shotgun go off. She said she looked outside, saw Nystrom standing in front of her house with a shotgun, he took the wheelbarrow, fired another round, and walked to his residence. What? He just, I, he just, he just hijacked a wheelbarrow. I, I'm taking this wheelbarrow. Some people have no limits. It's a shame. Fired a shotgun twice. I mean, you could ask. I'd let you borrow the wheelbarrow. Maybe he was going to get a wheelbarrow she had borrowed, and she didn't return it to her neighbor. Didn't say that. I'm just adding that. But there has to be a reason the guy's that angry or that not together. Some people just want to watch the world burn, Matt. They quote Alfred from The Dark Knight. Okay. Well, appreciate that. Um, Irrelevant fact. (laughs) Well, I mean, like, no, it starts with a wheelbarrow. And yeah, then it, the next thing you know, you're taking over the world. Um, crazy little point, though. You got to be careful with a wheelbarrow. And I get why he did it the way he did it, because you don't want to run with a wheelbarrow. I personally have had a wheelbarrow accident that I don't like talking about. It's a little embarrassing. Did that contribute to your plantar? No. But I had a hill in my yard and I was running up and down this hill with dirt from my front yard to my backyard. Up and down the hill, up and down the hill. Let's just say my wheelbarrow tire was a little flat, little flat tire. Not totally flat, a little flat, which I thought was good. Kept it from bouncing too much. But I'm running down the hill, full load of dirt. Hit a bounce, hit a, hit a divot. The thing bounces, and the front leg uh, had a little uh, had a little tipping. I don't know lever on it. I don't know what you call it, but it was it was a metal lever. And once you pushed it off the wheel onto that lever, you could tip your wheelbarrow over, and it wouldn't slide out from under you. Well, well, with the flat tire, that thing got stuck in the grass while I was heading down a hill, and I went flying over my wheelbarrow. Landed with a huh, 
had that little sissy grunt when you hit the ground really hard and all the air leaves your your chest. And your whole family was probably watching. No, luckily I was all by myself. Sometimes but, uh, that's even worse. Yeah, so. it was because I thought I was going to die and I couldn't breathe. And I looked to heaven and said a little prayer and all I heard was, <laughs> you will learn. Pray, Matt. And I learned I needed to pray more. No, I really did turf it, and it hurt pretty bad. And right then I decided I am no longer doing yard work. And if I ever steal a wheelbarrow, I'm just going to do it by a shotgun and walk it slowly back to my house. <sighs> Actually, those two stories have nothing to do with each other. But see how we merged them together? Hey, um, we also have to tell you this story. So I found the craziest story about sheep on the, on the rampage in a Spanish town, was overrun by a herd of sheep. The problem is, the shepherd had one job. You've got one job. Watch your sheep. But instead of watching his sheep, this shepherd, he fell asleep. He fell asleep on the job, and officials said that apparently as he dozed off, 1,000 head of sheep got away from him and at 4.30 in the morning they had pretty much overtaken the town of Huesca a city northeastern uh, northeast of Spain and there's a there's video of in the dark nights 4.30 in the morning sheep all over the street but do you think the people of this town were concerned yes you think so yes or did they just go this is Monday yes you Uh, know why the Welsh police well, the police were, were worried. Be concerned. Wait, I thought this was Spain. I know, I did too. And then it said the Welsh police. So the, the story I saw... Oh, it is from there. It's from northeastern Spain. But this had happened apparently in Wells where they worried because the sheep had been munching on cannabis. Mm. And they were afraid the sheep were going to like go on a psychotic rampage. Does it affect them the same way? Oh, sure. Okay. That, in fact, in the video right here, you can see them Are they eating, eating Cheetos. Chips. Yeah. <laughs> They're eating chips. They got the munchies. And brownies. Yeah. Hmm. Pretty interesting, huh? Yeah. I like the fact that we, we can show the video about it. That's great. It really adds context. It's just about a thousand sheep hmm. walking the town. It's a lot of wool. Well, and, and if if you're doing the Welsh one, then all of a sudden, guess what? Now you got some of them under the influence. Mm-hmm. They're really relaxed. Relaxed. <laughs> it's not good, guys. I don't know why you're laughing. They shouldn't operate heavy machinery? No. <laughs> you should avoid that. A lot easier to shear, though. Oh, yeah. They love it. <laughs> like, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's real over for you. <laughs> Keep shaving me. <laughs> Sad. I think this was actually just an article put out by the anti-pot growers of America. It could be. To give pot a bad name. Very well could be. Mm-hmm. Or the polyester... Uh, you know, the polyester association that is trying to get rid of wool. It's cotton. It's the cotton industry. Yeah, but it's cotton They have industry. a very huge, powerful lobby. That's it. It's, but spent, it's, it's now laced with cannabis. I spent some time in Lubbock, Texas. Those It's a, it's like a cotton mafia. Really? Yeah. Oy, so, uh, very powerful down there. You know, don't make me, uh, I don't want to have to, you know, ruin your wool. Before we go, one last story. What? How much would you pay for a jar of air? From 1970. Zero dollars. Zero dollars? I'll give you a jar of air from 
9-11. Apparently, a jar of air is going for nearly $100,000 on eBay. Oh, people. The sample was taken from a Stone Roses concert held Saturday in the United Kingdom, and it features all the atmosphere, anticipation, and ecstasy of 60,000 people singing their hearts out at Manchester's uh, the, uh, stadium there. The air was jarred up during the band's rendition of I Am, the, uh, one of their songs, and the seller notes that I swear to you, if you place your ear next to the jar, you can still hear the faint reverberation of the guitarist's solo. That is some great salesmanship right there. <laughs> you can also smell the churros wafting so, up So they had a concert, concert in England. Guy took a jar, and there's, there's pictures of him taking the jar and closing it. But he, he also mentioned words venue. like ecstasy, and so it seems like – was he trying to get the idea that you'll also get a feel for the drugs that were at the concert? All he says is all the atmosphere, anticipation of 60,000 people singing their hearts out. Is that a good deal, $100,000? No, if I wanted to have the concert, I should have just got a DVD of it or I should have had somebody record it. There is one warning though. The eventual winner, the, it, it ends June 26th, the auction on eBay. It says, keep the jar out of direct sunlight. One question posed on eBay, do you think I could get, uh, I guess, a buzz off of it like you're talking yeah. about? And the guy goes, he goes, there might be better options for that. Oh, man. <laughs> Dude, if you're buying air. Hey, Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy, give me some Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> I have some That's air. Central Park air. Yeah, just grab it off the shelf in the basement. Come on. Come on! Well, that's what it was. Something else on eBay was a, a quarter from the 1970s was priced at $35,000. Why? <clears throat> I'm pretty sure I have one of those in my pocket. There was some flaw in the quarter. Oh. And so that's different. For 35 That's different, right? That's different. Interesting stuff, folks. Um, you know, the information you get here. You don't get it anywhere else. Don't buy air. Don't buy it. Okay? The minute you open the jar, you think driving a car off the car lot depreciates your investment? Yeah. Well, so does opening a bottle of air from whenever. Don't do it. Come on. But seriously, it's the best concert you'll ever, you'll ever smell. Don't buy it. We'll take a break. When we come back, Ron Hager will be joining us. We're talking, uh, you know, reversal of memory memory loss. For some reason, I can't say those two words together. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is Ron Hager. Ron is uh, the Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at BYU and uh, is an expert in chronic disease prevention. And along with that, uh, a tennis aficionado and is working on the tennis camps here at BYU this week. Good to be here. You're a great tennis player. I'm just taking a break from the tennis. And In fact, you played with the governor of Utah. Relaxing in this air-conditioned room. <laughs> I bet you're so loving this because <laughs> yeah. it's it's roasting out there. <laughs> it is. Hey, you're here to talk to us about um, you know cognitive decline. Yes. Memory loss with Alzheimer's and sometimes just right aging. Yeah. Sometimes just aging. There's different kinds of cognitive decline, Matt. But the probably the number one uh, leading cause of cognitive decline is Alzheimer's disease, and you know it's become a 
a super feared condition. Yeah. You know, I mean, not so many years or I guess decades ago, Alzheimer's disease was uh, a word that most people didn't even know. Right. And now everybody knows about it. And it's uh, unlike most chronic diseases, which, you know, we're talking about things like heart disease or even cancer, uh, you know, which has remained fairly stable in terms of, you know, its prevalence or the number of deaths that it causes. Actually, in some cases, prevalence goes up, but treatments work fairly well. So deaths are staying about the same, in yeah. some cases even coming down, but not so with uh, with many neurodegenerative diseases, you know, that cause memory loss and uh, and uh, social dysfunction and inability to work, uh, even personality, you know, changes and all kinds of things. But this it's, has got to be environmental, right? Because something's something's different. Yeah, you know, that's that's what the experts are saying. Those who are out there researching it. Uh, you know, and, and one of the – I guess one of the sad things is um, is that the, the, the approaches, the, uh, you know, the research over the last few decades, which has literally cost billions of dollars, yeah. uh, has had essentially zero impact. Uh, there, is, there is not a single uh, – what they call a, a, a monotherapeutic, you know, a, a, a single therapeutic approach that can stop this. There, uh, there are only drugs – right now that can slow progression, but nothing stops mm. it, nothing reverses it, nothing cures it. And every case is so different, right? It's yeah. Every case is different. Yeah. You know, and we're talking, uh, you know, like I said, if you mention, especially as people get older, if you, you know, if you start talking about diseases, you know, it probably used to be that cancer was the most feared. Right. You know, everybody just, you know, did not want to get cancer. They were, you know, it's a, it's a fearful, it's an, an insidious kind of a disease where, you know, your own cells kind of get out of control and, and your your body basically kills itself. Right. You know, uh, but, but Alzheimer's is probably probably the most feared now. It's a, it's a real problem and it's increasing. Uh, it accounts for about 60 to 80 percent of all the dementia mm. cases. And, you know, and you think about this from two perspectives, right? Because there's the, the person who has the, the, the disease or condition and you know, during during their lucid moments or whatever, they realize that they're declining yeah. and it's a scary feeling. Uh, but then there's also the caregiver perspective, right. and and there's uh, and there's so much burden and care uh, related to uh, caring for somebody with with a with a, a, a dementia type condition uh, that can be very burdensome, very yeah. very taxing on an individual or a family. Uh, and and it's and it's in, and it's increasing. You know, part of it has to do with aging, right? So the, right. the baby boomers are getting older. Uh, I mean, Alzheimer's, for example, can can you know early stages can begin to manifest in the forties and fifties, right. even in some cases. But you know, mostly we're talking about like a sixty-five plus year old uh, population. And as the baby boomers move into that uh, that age category, they're expecting. Uh, you know, a, a, an increase in prevalence. But even if you look at, I guess, kind of a standardized way to look at prevalence, like say per 100,000 in the mm-hmm. population, Alzheimer's is on the rise. Oh, and my mother-in-law just died of it. But, well, or yeah, later we found out other things. But it was, in the end, I guess, you're you're dealing with, like you were saying, the family. That, hers went on for years, yeah. 10, 15 years. Yeah. So... I mean, how do we know? I mean, we don't want to panic everybody. So right. how no, do we know? Not. What are the well, warning signs? There, there are some warning signs, uh, and you have to you have to remember that you know we're talking about a progressive conditions, Alzheimer's and uh, dementia like conditions. They're always progressive, right? So a lot of times people, you know, they may be 
you know, say forget where they put the car keys or they can't remember, uh, you know, the name of, of of something or someone. And and initially it's kind of laughed off like, oh, yeah. you know, you're you're just getting old. Getting you know? old, Dad. Yeah, but if if those things get worse over time, if it becomes more frequent or more common, you know, then obviously that's a sign. So it, it, the kind of memory loss that disrupts daily life, uh, you know, like forgetting recently learned information. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean – you know, but and, and you got to be realistic here because that that happens to yeah. everybody, right? You know, right. I mean, you, you're just busy or you're distracted. You know, you Stressed. forget something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if it's disrupting daily life, you know, if it's a, you know, if it's happening over time, if you have challenges uh, in in planning or solving problems, uh, you know, maybe you have some difficulty with numbers or uh, or recipes. You know, maybe things that you've made repeatedly in the kitchen in terms of food, but then all of a sudden it's like, what, you know, I, you have to go back and look at the recipe uh, or or forgetting monthly bills. You know, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, something you've been doing for years, yeah. but then all of a sudden out of the blue, you know, you you forget the car payment or you forget to, the phone bill or something like that. And it's like something you haven't done in a long time, you know, that, that forgetting. Um, maybe having some difficulty completing you know, or performing familiar tasks at home or at work. This happens to a lot of people at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Alzheimer's and other dementia-related conditions actually get to a point where a person can no longer go to work. They cannot add columns of numbers. They cannot remember meetings. Or they overbook. They put two or three meetings on top of each other because they mm-hmm. didn't remember that they scheduled a meeting. Um, a lot of times people experience confusion uh, with time or place, like they lose track of dates or or even seasons. You know, a lot of people remember things, you know, you know, in, in the summer of 1971, you know, and they remember some of that, yeah. you know, uh, and then they all of a sudden they can't do that so anymore. It, uh, Alzheimer's then impacts uh, short-term memory, not necessarily long-term memory. Eventually, I guess it impacts all memory. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but, but it, it can be both ways. So yeah. it can be inability to recall things that you've known all your life. It can be inability to remember things from that, yesterday that, that you've just learned. E- uh. Even even in some cases, Matt, a uh, person is reading a book, and they might be two or three or even four chapters in, and then they realize, I already read this. You know, yeah. I, I, like I, I read this book last right. year, or or they read from the top of a page to a bottom of a page, and they got to go back to the top mm-hmm. of the page because they can't remember even by the bottom of a page what they what read they at the top reading. of the page. Let's yeah. let's take a break and come back. I want you to talk to us about is there anything to be done? Yeah, there is. And do any of these games like the mind games and all of those things, do those really help? Uh, Ron Hager's joining us, Associate Professor of Exercise Sciences today uh, uh, in the uh, College of Life Sciences at BYU. Today he's talking to us about uh, memory loss and Alzheimer's, what can be done, how to, uh, how to, uh, how to attend to your own um, mind and your own brain. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio, Ron Hager's joining us, but he's got to get back out there to the tennis courts with the youth. He's working the tennis uh, camps. I'll stay here. You'll stay here in the nice, cool (laughs) environment. I have a great time out there. I'm just kidding. It's a lot of fun. I know you do, but it's hot. It's hot. So uh, Ron's been talking to us about um, our health and 
Really, today we're talking mental health, memory loss, and uh, Alzheimer's. And he, at first, it you know, it sounds really, Ron, it sounds like we it's it's just bad. It's yeah. just bad. Any well, way you look at it, there's no, you're done. And, and you know, realistically, in in the medical community, that, that is kind of the case. I mean, there, there is a ton of research going on right now. But like I said, over the past decade, uh, hundreds of clinical trials, billions of dollars. Yeah. And, you know, one, one author uh, said that, uh, that uh, you know, that, that this, this issue with uh, finding a cure or whatever says that neurodegenerative disease therapeutics, meaning the kinds of medicines they're coming up with, has been arguably the field of greatest failure of biomedical therapeutics development. Really? So that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, those are strong words, right? Yeah. Well, uh, in this article that I brought in, this is a fairly recent, it's from a couple years ago, uh, comes out of a, the journal Aging, uh, the title, Reversal of Cognitive Decline, a Novel Therapeutic Program. So uh, this, this, this researcher and, and doctor, uh, physician, uh, kind of thought that maybe instead of this you know, this monotherapeutic approach, you know, a single medicine to fix right. everything, fix the deal. You know, which oftentimes happens in things like blood pressure, uh, uh, high cholesterol, uh, you know, cardiovascular disease, even uh, HIV, mm-hmm. AIDS, uh, you know, kinds of things. Well, he's saying, well, maybe because there's maybe so many different factors coming in, like you said, environmental, right. impacting on risk of Alzheimer's disease, that maybe it's going to take kind of more of a combined or a combination of therapeutics or approaches, you know, to overcome this. And so what he did is he conducted a, a study, uh, t- only 10 people in this study. So obviously, you know, this is not, you know, a strong study. Yeah. And, and a lot of it's anecdotal and observational, but it's the beginning of something that could be much bigger uh, as, as researchers begin to explore this. But he, he had 10 uh, people in this study. Uh, all of them uh, had, e- e- you know, either... Uh, you know, in, in various stages of Alzheimer's disease or some type of, uh, uh, you know, mild cognitive impairment or subjective cognitive impairment. There are different words for all these conditions. Uh, but the thing that's so exciting uh, about this research is he came up with uh, kind of what he calls uh, uh, the therapeutic system 1.0, hmm. uh, obviously Im- implying that, you know, there's room for improvement. But, you know, and it's a, it's a list of about 25 things that uh, people can do uh, or a doctor can work with, you know, for a patient to customize an approach. Now, now, you know, th- this entails some blood work and some other things because you want to find out, you know, if there are vitamin or mineral deficiencies. Yeah. You want to find out if there are uh, inflammatory markers that are elevated, you know, uh, different things that could be going on in the body. You know, is there... Uh, is there is there any oxidative stress going on in the body? So, you know, it, it's a clinical type of an approach. This isn't just you know, hocus pocus. Uh, but but it also includes some very significant behavioral yeah. uh, changes. And so there's 25 things on this list, and he tailors an approach based on what a person needs. Now, uh, he, in, in, his, in, in this uh, article, in this study, he, he talks about a, a, a case study, a patient, a 67-year-old woman who had two years of progressive memory loss uh, she had a very demanding job involved, you know, things like preparing analytical reports and traveling extensively. And she found over that two-year period that she was no no longer able to analyze data or prepare the reports that she needed to mm. do. She was actually considering quitting her job. Um, she, I mean, she was actually very good 
at, uh, you know, working with numbers. Right. And it got to a point where she couldn't even uh, remember numbers. She, she had to write down four-digit numbers because she couldn't even remember four-digit numbers. Um, and, and, and like I said, she traveled extensively, and, and she would actually get lost. I mean, she, she, she would mix up, you know, where she, you know, she was in a car. She couldn't remember which exit to take. Uh, she couldn't. She even had you know some pets, and she couldn't even remember her pets' names. She, oh wow! And she couldn't even sometimes turn the lights on and off in her house because she couldn't remember where the light switches were. So this over this, this over two years, she went from she was yeah. yeah she was suffering. Yeah. Now her mother had uh, suffered from a very similar condition, uh, beginning in her early sixties, and she died at around eighty. She went to the doctor, uh, this woman, and the doctor said. Uh, that uh, that she had the same problem as her mother, and there's nothing that can be done. Yeah, there's no, you're done. That's what the doctor told her. Wow. So not surprisingly, uh, she decided to commit suicide. Ah. Oh. And mm. but, but before she did, she called a friend to commiserate, and the friend suggested that she get on a plane and come and see, come see her, come see her, which she did. And from there, she was she was referred uh, to this program for evaluation, and so she went into this program. And after three months on this program, all of her symptoms uh, abated. She was able to navigate without problems, remember telephone numbers without difficulty, prepare work, uh, uh, all of her reports without difficulty. She could read and retain information. She became completely asymptomatic. And, And here's what she did. Okay. Uh, I mean, so she didn't even do all 25 things. She did what she could. Yeah. Uh, she eliminated all simple carbohydrates from her diet, and we've talked yeah. a lot about Get rid of you know, the... all of this kind of stuff. Right. So, and and by just by eliminating uh, simple carbohydrates and doing some other things, she lost twenty pounds. So maybe, wow. maybe just Im- that maybe improving her health from mm-hmm. weight loss made a difference too. She also eliminated gluten and processed foods from her diet. She increased uh, fruit and vegetable consumption, and she began to eat non-farmed fish, so wild-caught fish, hmm. in order. To reduce her stress, she began a yoga program, and she began to meditate for about 20 minutes twice a day. Uh, she took melatonin, which is uh, 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 a supplement. Uh, it's not a, a, a like a it's an over-the-counter kind of thing. It's not a yeah. prescription. Uh, helps people stay calm. Helps them relax. Uh, she increased her sleep. She was getting four to five hours of sleep, which is not unusual not, in today's yeah, right, society. Right. To uh, seven to eight hours per night. Wow. Uh, she took a, a, a B vitamin supplement, a, a vitamin D supplement, a CoQ10 supplement, and a fish oil supplement uh, because she was deficient in some of these things. So she didn't just take these because uh, she felt yeah, like she it. Yeah, she wasn't just adding it. She, they, her levels said she needed yeah, it. Yeah, her levels said she needed it. Uh, she also optimized her oral hygiene. Uh, now, people say, well, what in the Why? world would that have yeah. to do? Because – there's so much infection that originates in the mouth, right? And that infection can can lead to in inflammation in the body. Interesting. And, and, and chronic systemic inflammation is is not good for you. So she 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 did that. Uh, she also reinstated hormone replacement therapy. Uh, you know, after working with her primary care physician, and then and then this is one of the most interesting to me, because we live in a world where there's a constant food supply, right? Uh, she fasted. For a minimum of 12 hours between dinner and breakfast. I like okay. that. Yeah. And for a minimum of three hours between d- dinner and bedtime. So she gave herself a break from yeah. food. Right. Okay. So 12 hours between dinner and breakfast. Says so 15 hours a day. And, 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 and at least three hours yeah. between 
dinner and bedtime. Wow. And then the last thing she did is she exercised for a minimum of 30 minutes, four to six days per week. And so it reversed her entire Every Every process. symptom was gone. Every symptom was Unbelievable. gone. Unbelievable. So it, it, that, that to me is is is, hope. Fan, is fantastic, right? And now, uh, we got to go though, Ron, but yeah. we're, we're, this article was by Del E. Bredesen. Yeah. Um, uh, in the it, journal Aging. In the, in, uh, in the journal of Aging. What, what would you say to the rest of us that do we, do we just start doing this ourselves or do we go find a doctor that is more holistic in their approach and willing well, to look at the whole thing? Well, you know, there, there's more and more interest in the medical community for, things, for something called functional medicine where doctors are looking at kind of what you said, the environment and yeah. its impact and how to reverse that. So I would suggest shopping around, but also doing your own research. Yeah. I mean, you can find this kind right. of information online, including this very article. If you can't find a physician, it's not like you can't take charge yourself. Right. Become educated, learn as much as you can, and you can probably do a lot just yourself. Yeah, no, exactly. Get started. Yeah, and get, get started. started and prevent some of this too. Uh, Ron Hager, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. He's the man, the myth, the legend. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Our new theme song. From Millie Vanilli. Mm-hmm. We're going to shoot it down to our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show. Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Lord. Matthew. Hello. Hello. How are you? Sunburned. Are you sunburned? Tired. Where were you? Happy to be back. You went. Did you go to your Vegas uh, town in the middle of nowhere? I did not go to Cal Navari. Okay. I did not go to that place. Okay, you didn't do that. All right. I did play golf in the thriving metropolis of Mesquite, Nevada. Ooh. (laughs) Mesquite. (laughs) And a little golf in St. George, Utah. You did get burnt then. Mm Mm-hmm. Mmm. That'll make good TV, though. He's got some sun. That's great. How are they going to white balance the TV? They're not. Okay. We've we've got professionals. (laughs) <laughs> you do have highly getting burned by the ultraviolet that is coming off of my skin right now. Yeah, I think my phone is super clean now from the UV rays coming off your face. Is it? Yeah, that's it. great. How he's he's cleaning all like the germs. Is it's you guys? I got to let you know when you two are out of town, the people that fill in for you are partiers. It goes Brilliant. crazy. Brian and Jason. Brian. Yeah, we can't take responsibility for the yeah. actions of we others. We really don't. Like when we leave. We just we just hope that it's not yeah. you know chaos on the set. When we, we bring come out back. the basin of water and cleanse our hands. So <laughs> <laughs> what you wipe do? It, wipe it like pilot? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think I understand the metaphor. That's kind of Jeez, rough. I don't want to be compared to that guy. Hey uh, guys, it's also um, today is Go Skateboarding Day. Were you guys boarders? I I skateboarded uh, quite a bit. Uh, when I lived in California as a young child, until the by accident. I mean, sit on it and go down the side. Oh yeah, when I was seven. I don't think that's, that's yeah. what I meant by that. That's fun. You go I down did hills. Not skateboard, but I did. I was a fan of Tony Hawk. He made skateboarding cool in my mind. Yes, he did. Skateboarding was cool. Tony Hawk is the face. Yeah. of skateboarding. He is, and he's got great video games. Oh, yeah. Bro. I mean, for those that play. 
Today, by the way, strange is afoot at the Circle K. (laughs) Thanks, Spicoli. Hey, uh, today, um, by the way, World Music Day. Every day is World Music Day. Yeah, in Jerem's world, it is always World Music Day. Is it? Yeah. Mi amor la musica. Let me just take you through some things that have happened this morning musically. Yeah. What? Okay. What? Jerem saying, "Where are you, Christmas?" But oh, instead wow. of yesterday, but instead of Christmas, he substituted the word Spencer. Two, four, six, oh one. That has also happened on yeah. on this current program. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we just listen to Millie Vanilli. Yeah. Blame it on the rain. Blame it on the rain. You, of course, it's World Music Day. We've covered Air, Air all day. genres. Every day, every day is Music Day. We we're gonna do the. We are going to seriously perform a musical with really? just with these little breaks that, that I get with you. BYU Sports uh-huh. Nation combo musical. I will I will set up uh-huh. the opportunities for you to to then you know in, mm-hmm. increase your 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 popularity by. You know, getting into Broadway musicals more, not just sports. Anything for us to get more FaceTime. That's what we want. Literally, we'll do anything. No, that's not true. (laughs) Not anything. Then at the very end of this said musical, Stan Ellsworth, American Man, comes in. Let's take a ride. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, boom. (laughs) Who wants to get on the back of my Harley? Uh, we we always laugh about uh, Stan inviting people to get on the back of his Harley. Hey, um, here's here's a, here's a little story we did earlier, and I just want your take on it. We got to go fast because you guys got your show That's to do. Okay, whistles uh, have been banned from a school during. You know how you'd get the whistle? They they'd blow the whistle mm-hmm. to get you in from recess. Mm-hmm. And so we went through other sounds, and I want you to guess which sound was most likely to get the kids to come in from recess. Okay, because you can't use a whistle. <laughs> there are, Where's the tornado? There are planes it. overhead. That's yeah. the air raid, right? So yeah. that worked. That was huge in the 50s and 60s. Or 50s. Uh, then we had the next one. Was, so was it the Mario? Yeah, oh, I thought we were going to keep... We started the, dancing. The air raid. Now, here's the third one. Hot pocket. Hot <laughs> pocket. Because that always got me running. When mom would say, hot pocket, we'd run to the microwave. Um, or this one. Foghorn. Or this last sound. Land ho! Land ho. Actually, <laughs> that's, the, that's the fifth one. How about this last one? Okay, which one is most likely to motivate a child? The last one. Oh, that one or Super Mario Brothers? Yeah, it was the last one. Super Mario Brothers is that, that's, that's right in our wheelhouse, by the way. That's, that, that is about your age group, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you can't use whistles anymore because they're seen as too aggressive. Oh, man. So I don't know. Yeah, aggressive. I, be, I'm just thinking be. of all the Mario songs now. do 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 there's so many triplets in that. What an amazing syncopation. You know, we just recorded that. So that will be the first chapter of the musical. We can't use certain songs on BYTV. We should just record us singing those songs. You should. And you can do them on my show because we have other rights. I love that. Zoom past everyone. Just flying through. So you guys get it. That's good. Okay, that'll we'll put that on the recording for sure. That's uh, that'll be the first um, that'll be the first song on the album with twenty songs. Okay, mm. yeah, baby, it's getting good. All right. Hey, what's going on in your show today? Real fast, Phil uh, Steele, 
college football expert Phil Steele is yeah. back on the show. How many wins does the guy project for BYU to win in 2016? Ooh, that's good. Phil also, will know. it's summertime. Yeah. Strawberry moon last night and all. Mm. So what in the world do we do until football returns? It's kind golf. of a depressing topic. Hot golf. <laughs> hot golf. Like hot yoga? Hot we're golf. Playing, we're playing golf today. Or is it depressing? No. Is this an, is this an interesting offseason so much that f- football will come quickly? Mm. We're going to give you some things to do. Cool. Yeah. That's a good show. Plus you're back. And I'm back. That's all we need is just that you two have the love and the tan. Where are you, Spencer? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, good show, guys. Well, now that we've got all the nonsense out, we can get to work. Shake it out, boys. Shake it out. Okay, have a great show. Knock them dead. Thanks. Kill them. That's cool. Yeah, they got good voices. I'm telling you. When they hired them folk for that show, they knew them had some good lungs and good vocal talent. That's cool. I noticed you never sing, Ben. I I don't want to take it away from you, Matt. Well, and I, I just wanted to tell you I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I could drown your voice out, but I figured yeah. you might need it. Do you remember when you sang that one day and 9-11 was called and um, they came in and thought you were choking? Do you remember that? That um, was funny. That was for a different reason. It wasn't because of my singing. I was actually choking. Oh, okay. Did you know that there, there is a place and a time for divine intervention? And if Brian Logan had been on the BYU Sports Show, because he always, he always you know, pleads for um, help from above. But a Spanish priest in Madrid is basically taking his faith to a whole new level. He's, uh, a Spanish priest says he has given up hope that local authorities in his parish of uh, – Excess is probably Zestoso in the northwest uh, area of the country will fix the potholes. He doesn't think that the authorities are going to fix potholes anymore in the roads. So instead, he's asking for divine intervention. Luis Roldan Patino celebrated mass on a pitted road Sunday and splashed holy water to bless the road. Each pothole is now marked with a wooden cross on the roadside so drivers can slow down before hitting them. He said Roldan Patino told journalists that just like we can pray to the Lord for rain, he is pleading for divine intervention to fix the road because it's going to be the only way to do that. He said authorities are blind to the situation and we feel totally abandoned. So he's very faithful. Very faithful man. There's one way to get it done. And if you can't do it through the government, really, the first place you should go. But then you're supposed to not just pray to get the potholes fixed, right? You're supposed to pray as if it all depends on God, but act as if it all depends on you. Keep at the crosses there. Right. But maybe what they ought to do is, uh, you know, fix the potholes themselves. But that's like holding back on your faith. Well, I mean, you can do both. Exercise the faith and then fix the potholes. Or just don't drive down that road anymore. 
That's probably a better, That's probably idea, a better yeah. answer right there. Hey, as you know, we like to wrap up the show with a hero story. And this is a great story out of Jacksonville, Florida. Man saves a baby from a burning car along Florida Highway seconds before the vehicle explodes. They were in the right place at the right time. Two men stumbled upon a burning vehicle on the side of Interstate 95 Friday morning and managed to save a baby that was in the back seat moments before the car exploded. Stephen Hill, 45, and Jason Nelson, who were both movers, saw that they, uh, that what was barely recognizable in the fiery vehicle, this tiny baby uh, in the vehicle. They immediately checked to see if other people were in the car. When the heroes reached the blaze, they saw the driver, 31-year-old Daniel Dufek, and it was abundantly clear he was dead. And while trying to pull his body out of the wrecked car, the men saw Dufek's daughter strapped to a car seat in the back. Steve noticed that there was a baby in the back seat. said, oh, my heavens, there's a baby. At first, we did not see the baby. The flames were up and up, and they were coming up. Hill acted quickly from freeing the baby from the restraints. God put me there for a reason, he said. He put me and Jason there for a reason. Obviously to save that little baby, he said. After freeing the baby, Hill grabbed her and ran with Nelson from the blaze. Seconds later, the vehicle's gas tank caught on fire, and the car exploded. Thank God, thank God, Nelson said. It was like perfect timing. The child was cooing and crying a little bit, he said, when the paramedics arrived on the scene to take her to UF Health Jacksonville. The child was in critical condition, the health center reported Friday. Although they barely made it out alive, Hill said, checking the car for survivors was their only choice. There was no way I was going to let a baby die. No way, Hall told the news station. He said, I'd burn first for sure. He's the hero of the day, folks. Just people being there, following the promptings that they sense and feel, and uh, being willing to go the extra mile. That's all we need, and we need to do it for each other. That's the show, folks. We'll be back again tomorrow. More tools, more information, ideas, the things you need to know to live longer, healthier, and stronger lives. We'll be back tomorrow, and until then, take care of each other and make it a great one. We'll talk tomorrow.